This is Tom from Third Rail Design Lab. And Chris from Deeply Dapper. And it's time to... And here's where we do just like a series of white screams. <laughs> it's like an episode late, but... <laughs> yeah, really. And scene. Release the... Kraken! Here we are once again doing our Robot Kraken Game of Thrones recaps of both optimism and malaise. Indeed. Are you ready? Are you ready? My lord. Queen Daenerys demands Cersei's unconditional surrender and the immediate release of Missandei of Noth. Queen Cersei demands Daenerys' unconditional surrender. If she refuses, Missandei of Nath will die here and now. Kyburn, you're a rational man. Or so I flatter myself, my lord. We have a chance here. Perhaps our last chance to avoid carnage. Yes. Help me. I don't want to see the city burn. I don't want to hear the screams of children burning alive. No, it is not a pleasant sound. I... I don't want to hear it. Help me save this city. My lord, I am only a mouthpiece for our queen. Your queen? Cersei is queen of the Seven Kingdoms. You are her subject. Her reign is over. You understand this. Help her understand it. We understand nothing of the sort. Which one of us is optimistic and which one of us has malaise? <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit of all of the above, I guess. I don't know. I might be one more than the other, frankly. If you couldn't Four. guess that already. Oh, I got it. So this has been um, an interesting two weeks of interwebs and people's reactions to mm-hmm. Game of Thrones. Um, yes. I think that there are some common threads in a lot of people's frustrations and that mm-hmm. and they are things are compressed and going too quickly with not enough uh, earning of the scenes that we get and uh, characters being written inconsistently with their history. Um, yeah, as my, my brother put it, he put it very succinctly in a way that I was impressed. He said that the last episode felt like they were written by someone that had had the characters described to them. <laughs> That's really good. That's really good. It's really, I mean, it's interesting. Um, and, I, you know, one thing is, uh, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, last week's The Long Night and this week's Last of the Starks were both written mm-hmm. by Weiss and Benioff. Were, were they, they not? I genuinely have no idea, actually. Let's say that's what it is. Um, assuming it's, I'm right. It is what it is. <laughs> well, assuming I'm right, what's interesting about that is that um, it, it, it does beg the question, if these guys have been under um, some self-incurred pain to figure out a way to tie this up in one season, which they insist they chose mm-hmm. to do themselves... Um, it really calls into question whether these guys are 
as as good as writers as they are as overall producers in this project. Yeah. I mean, I think over the previous seasons there have been some some weak points where they were um, more directly involved with uh, the story creation. I just don't know, though, because right. we don't know how their writer's room works. Yeah, this last week's episode was the lowest rated episode ever on IMDb. That's interesting. Although, you have to be fair, that's this week's IMDb's rating. I mean, I think the reaction to this is pretty... Uh, um, yeah, that's absolutely, yeah. You know, I, people are saying it's the worst. I've read, you know, people are complaining that it's the worst episode ever, and I think that they're forgetting whole seasons worth of of stalling and you know yeah like. the problem with the previous seasons though is that there was always at least one of the characters that had a compelling storyline going at yeah. any time and i think that's the big problem is is that they're all crammed together now so yeah. we're still getting danny being marini all over the place it's just that there aren't other fun characters involved with that like outside the picture i think I was uh, I was thinking while I was riding home today about how um, a lot of major, you know, popular, ambitious, um, well-regarded uh, series how they implode in their final season. I think mm-hmm. that there's a lot of pressure, uh, and particularly when you consider um, shows like Game of Thrones and Westworld, which is not ending, but you know th- these shows are existing and even Lost, although it was a little bit more primitive version of the same issue. They're living. I do feel like that has seen like a weird, like ah, it wasn't as bad as I expected in more recent years, which I think is interesting. Well, yeah, but what I was going to say was that these shows are all these these mythology heavy, mystery heavy um, shows have been um, produced at a time when there's a very active and vocal um, internet base. base particularly yeah. with regards to Reddit and sites like that. So, you know, if you consider, uh, you know, interesting projects of the past or, you know, like, I mean, just a wider swath, just imagine like, you know, think about when you read uh, excerpts of letters, letters to newspapers and whatnot about uh, Star Wars and the first trilogy, you know, <laughs> like all that, you know, like, you know, the people writing in about who they think Darth Vader is and all that other stuff. And, you know, they had the, it's just like comics and everything else. They had a one way path to talk to, to other than talking to their friends at the comic store or whatever it was, write a letter to an editor or something and then, and, and mail it and then eat Cheerios. Right. <laughs> right. And now we're, uh, you know, now, now, we're now we're at a point where spoiler gifts the uh, thirty seconds after the cure everything is everywhere completely you know talked about over and over and over and over again uh, ad nauseum by people yeah. on the internet to a, to a degree that there's nothing they could do that would surprise anybody and everything anything they do is going to disappoint somebody and yeah, I wonder. Fair. I wonder if these la- you know, the la- unfair, depending. <laughs> yeah, well, and maybe these last seasons they suffer under the burden of well, we can't please everybody, so we're just going to pick a direction and go with it. But what surprises me about Lost is a good example, and then I think this season here is it's easy. There's a million fans out there who are complaining about all the nuance of all the things they didn't get out of each of these last episodes that they wanted, but I think mm-hmm. that there are a lot of creators and semi semi-competent writers who are looking at these things just like Lost and others and saying, you know, 
I can see a pretty straightforward way of wrapping this up that would have been very reasonable. And they're taking, and then they're taking the, they're taking this project in a direction that seems more complicated and less effective than it could be if they just kept it simple. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's that's yeah. kind of my my feeling on it. I don't know. Um, so anyway, okay. So this is the the last of the Starks. Yes, the last of the Starks. Um, AKA how do you want the telephone game Westeros? Style. Oh, jeez. Okay. So <laughs> how how would you? Maybe do we, should we talk character by character instead of scene by scene, or how do you want to do it? Sure, it's it's impossible to do scene by scene the way they shot the the dinner scene. It's well, yeah, just absolutely impossible. Well, how about but this? You know, initial a, a but initial takeaway. Yeah, it's, initial I mean, t- it starts with a montage of all the the victors or survivors. I'm not sure what term you would use, but right. It starts with the Northerners celebrating their victory. And I, I did enjoy like the first, I don't know, what was that, 20 minutes of the movie, of the show? I, I thought I, it was. Yeah. Good. I was going to say, I mean, just in the same way that last episode had, it was broken into three half hour segments that had different tones mm-hmm. by design. This one was again broken it felt like it was broken into two halves i guess but yeah. they felt like they were different episodes like it was yeah. not just because one was stationary and then one was in motion but the uh thematic content and the emotional content of the first half was entirely different than the back half and agreed however what's interesting about that is as i think about it in re- you know in retrospect I think that this, the back half falls apart faster to me, uh, but at the time I was much more dissatisfied with the front half. In fact, really? I was so I was so pulled out of it that I was annoyed at it. That's <laughs> so, interesting because I really liked the first half and hated the second half, like absolutely hated it. Uh, in the second half, I was able to fo- I was following along on a plot basis, and even though I was out- outraged at um, logical inconsistencies, there. Some for some reason or other, I was like, "Well, it's still it's it's forward motion." But in the first half, my initial reaction was that it felt incredibly compartmentalized and compressed. The dinner scene, or the you know, sort of the recovery. Well, the the pyre, then the recovery scene, and then the everybody has sex scene, and then you know, break. Now that said, tell me more about what you liked. Uh, I mean, I will say that the. The dialogue still felt stilted, and people sitting around fires talking is still one of my favorite parts about Game of Thrones. I mean, sure. it's the intrigue and the characters and the personalization and everything else. The backlight. Like, yeah, the, yes, exactly. The, the fire flickering and whatnot. And, like, in this particular scene, I felt like Tormund was written very buffoony compared to previous yeah. appearances. Um, I think his 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 characterization was really off in a lot of ways. Uh, But, you know, like most of the rest of it worked for me. It wasn't amazing, but it worked for me. Uh, Thinking about that, that that whole um, recovery feast uh, Mm -hmm. with him, his his going after uh, Brienne one more time and striking out was was fine. But then immediately cutting to him bawling was whatever it was really strange. Um, yeah. And also, 
I, it didn't strike me this way when I first watched it, but then I started thinking about it. He's one of the more progressive characters, despite being such a big uh, masculine buffoon on some of these seasons. Mm-hmm. He's still been fairly progressive. He's been very forward about the women in the no- in the north, like the wilding women, and 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 he's. Uh, you know, he was certainly got his ass saved by Daenerys last season. I mean, it was so strange how everything was, re- everything just turned on a dime to service the new plot directive of this episode, which was to further I- isolate Danny and uh, you know, just right. pr- produce a scenario where she's going to see them in the corner. Um, it just furthering this whole, you know, I've spent my whole life and career attaining this goal, and now some dude's going to take it. Uh, who doesn't but even she want? Hasn't. That's that's yeah, I know. My, I know. always I, been yeah. my biggest problem with her is that she's she's just assumed that it belongs to her. Well, and that's true. Like, I mean, that's literally how Danny's done everything. Is she's just like, this is mine and it belongs to me and give me. Yeah. And that's just how she's done everything. But, but I, but I, I Tormund being like, well, of, you, he, him, you know, you're either a madman or a king if you can ride a dragon. That was written, that was really bad writing because I understand they're trying to capture that he was being um, lauded and everyone was rallying around him because he has charisma mm-hmm. and the loyalty of these people. But the kinds of things they were saying were so internally inconsistent with the experiences they had and her sitting right over there. It didn't even make sense when I was watching it to me. Well, and. Th- I think part of your disconnect with it is the editing, and if you look at who yeah. directed this, I believe Nutter, Nutter, is yeah, the guy who also directed uh, most of the the slightly more comedic episodes of Game of Thrones, if you could call it that. Um, he's the one that did the Bear and the Maiden Fair, I think. He's the uh, one who did some of their most intense ones, right? He did the Red Wedding. He did uh, right. His, uh, I, I don't know about that one, honestly. I think he did. I mean, he's he's well known for being a very uh, effective shoot a, shoot a ton of material, catch everyone's, uh, you know, catch multiple angles of everyone emoting through each scene, and then editing it together in a certain way, and really pushing actors to give their best. He's he's been talked about in interviews as having triggered. Uh, um, emotional meltdowns in actors two or three times because of what he whispers at them right before they cut do their scene. Right. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I could be wrong. I, my sense was, in in retrospect, that I think the first half of this especially was crafted very well in terms of the natural light and the way things were shot, and in particular, the way they wove everything in that hall yeah, together. Yeah, he did direct so, the reins and cast a mirror. Yeah. Well, like, it, um, the whole thing about... Cat taking this large group of people and breaking them up into these little clusters and then having servants and that kind of thing and people moving to get drinks and stuff is the way to interweave between all of their different little sub you know sub conversations was very effective mm-hmm. technically effective I think it was dial I think it was uh some of the I think it was script more than anything that was was sort of bothering me and then it was the editing and pacing of it. Well, in the editing and the pacing, I, I'm trying to look it up to see if I'm wrong or not, but it felt really similar to the episode with Sam in Old Town, mm. where there, uh, where he's emptying yeah. the, the things over and over again, right. and uh, that was episode um, 
episode one of season seven, but that was actually Jeremy Podeswa or Podeswa. Hmm. So that was a different director, but it felt very similar to that to me, where it was like scene cut, scene cut, scene cut, scene cut. And it worked for me, but I can understand why it wouldn't work for other people, too. Yeah. Because it did um, feel very weirdly disconnected. Uh, so, yeah, it, well, I, I get it. I mean, so I think his strength and weakness is that he he, cover, he gets a lot of coverage and then puts it together. I mean, famously, <laughs> this episode will be infamous for as long as people remember these things. It's going to be infamous as the coffee cup, right? And there's such <laughs> a huge drama about this coffee cup being on the table, but in reality, if he's cutting 50 different takes of everything and he's going again and again and again and half the time, and the actors have talked about with this guy that half the time they don't even know when the scene's starting because he's just running film and talking right. to people and getting them to do new things. And then no, no, no. he's relying on a heavy post-production editing process to put it together. You could see how you would be. And also she's staring at lights and a boom mic and a bunch of other crew. And, you know, I mean, there's so much going on. It's not yeah, I mean, conceivable that that thing uh, would still be on the table. Extremely high chance that that wasn't even her coffee cup. I mean, there's oh, yeah. just, well, but, yeah. but then again, I think, um, and it sucks to have, um, the, bl- the blame isolated on anybody but I think that some creators have stepped forward um, someone from who did, worked on The Shield and, and a few other shows pointed out that something like that coffee cup being left on the table that's very easy to do during filming because yeah. of the chaos it's very 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 rare to survive post-production and that's the real question no, is how because yeah. it's not even the, just the editors but the sound people sound mixers went through and watched it a number of times to produce their alignment and the dialogue dubbing and the lighting folks and then the producer reviews and then the network reviews before it ever like that's, those shows are watched like 50 times before it ever you know is ever broadcast right. that's what's so astonishing about it I'll tell you I didn't see it when we watched it no I, mean, I didn't either it is David Nutter, by the way, who did The Red Wedding. So I think he's... Yeah, um, that's what I said. I mean, he's very well... Oh, you were saying Castamere. Oh, well, okay. Anyway, but the that's point is... That's what it's called. Oh, yes? The, the episode's called Reign of Castamere. Well, don't or you Reign just know things about various things? <laughs> okay, I'm on so, the Indipo right now. <laughs> okay. okay, so... While I think a lot of that sequence had a, a purpose, particularly with regards to isolating Danny and showing how once the once the glow of basic survival starts to fade a little bit people people start to break down into their factions again some mm-hmm. of the other parts of it were really um, felt tonally off to me such as Tyrion prodding Brienne in their little drinking game and pushing and pushing the way he was it was very strange I couldn't understand his motivation when he was doing it yeah, I I don't know. I I think one of the things that they're doing with Tyrion, and I don't think they're doing it well, is I think they're trying to show someone who has fucked up often enough that he's now he's drinking more and he's getting less yeah. effective. He's getting sloppy. I think is what they're trying to do with this. And if that is what they're doing, I don't think they're doing very good with it. But that's kind of the vibe I've been getting from, like, kind of like the the couple of offhanded comments that Varys has made and that kind of thing. 
but I don't know. My sense was it turned once he had their, once they had their little treason talk, or their second or third treason talk. My sense was that that was his wake up call. Giant fucking echoey. Yes. Chamber where they should have never been having that kind of conversation. (laughs) Yes, yes. But I mean, after that, you know, like he made that pointed comment about his drinking and then started talking about the seriousness of things. And. You know, and then you see Tyrion really put his ass out there, and you know. Anyway, I don't know. We'll see. I have a diff. I have some different thoughts about where Tyrion might be going, but um, going back I to think this, Tyrion made a really bad logistical error in assuming that Cersei would listen to him about the kid situation. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Um, so the other thing is, so you have okay, so you had the pyre scene, which I actually thought was very effective. Yeah, no, I thought um, it was great, yeah. There's a lot of logistical questions about... There's some scale issues, I think, that I was it was yeah, bugging me while I was watching that, you know, they were so... They confirmed that these nice, even uh, chunks, it wasn't all of the Dothraki, but half the Dothraki, but, you know, yeah, it looked like all. Really? And, ha- and then half the Unsullied. How is that even possible? <laughs> and they said half the Unsullied, and then half of the of the Northerners, or the uh, Wild right. actually. I, I couldn't get a sense that there were... Uh, it, any sense of the uh, losses from northern West Westerosin, at Westerosi, but yeah. anyway, there were still huge reductions in population and resources, mm-hmm. and then you have these massive pyres. There was there was a lot of stuff in this episode, and I think this whole season that were produced for effect that were hard to rationalize. If you you know, like even even if we take away like the the instant teleportation of things in in these mm-hmm. most recent episodes that people can get from one side of the continent to the other in a day and all these other things like a scene like that I know I'm that guy that gets excited in, in our previous recording I get excited when someone's talking about supplies and logistics <laughs> but I was sitting there once again I'm sitting there on my couch going well, who made those pyres right <laughs> right yeah they were very nice looking I assume they must have just, you know, uh, had a lot of extra wood from when they were making those defenses. And they were like, oh, well, these are already cut perfectly. These are just right for pyres. <laughs> <laughs> I had this amusement, and this is how di- the verisimilitude was not working for me. I had a, an amusement at the time that Sansa, being a pragmatist, was like, I don't want a bunch of dead bodies, um, you know, uh, stinking up Winterfell, assuming, assuming there's any chance that we win. I need to plan for this in advance and had them made like in advance. (laughs) Not true. Um, But then the same thing goes all the way into the feast scene. I was like, who's cooking all this? Like this. And then, and then the scale of it, like I, for me, well, that's I felt what like they it would have been more effective. Beginning is cooking all of that. <laughs> uh, I, I felt like the scale wanted to be much more, um, much smaller. Uh, yeah. Even though there is a substantial amount of people still alive, um, something about it made me feel like I wanted it to be like a bunch of little encampments of people that are recovering, as opposed to this big party. But you know, that's fine. The the pyre scene was actually really emotionally effective. Uh, yeah, it was and that great. was one of the ones where Nutter whispered in. He whispered in uh, Amelia Clark's ear right before she leaned down to do her scene with uh, what's his name it was Jorah, and that's what melted her as he was niggling her a little bit. Um, the uh, and then the 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 I don't, do you watch the making of videos on nope. HBO? So I started watching. <laughs> I was going to save them to the end, and now I started watching them. Just like I was so dissatisfied with this episode, I actually watched. 
um, two back to back just to sort of cleanse my palate. But one of the things they were talking about is how how much practical effects work was in the pyre scene, which I thought was impressive. I thought it was all you know just everything's digital, but they had you know three or four of the pyres which were uh, real to some degree. They had the real actors on a platform, and then the wood had a metal substructure, and then they had the pyrotechnics underneath them, and they did it in such a way, the actor's on glass, right? And so they're actually burning, the burning is happening under the actor Hmm. while they're performing their little small segments of scene, uh, but it looks like the fire is coming up around them because of the openings. Yeah, I did definitely feel like the the pyre scenes looked really practical and nice. I thought they looked excellent, actually. They cloned them like three or four times to create all of the pyres, but they did have enough practical effects to work with, which <laughs> I thought was very cool. That's cool, yeah. Um, it was it was odd, though, that they would pair certain uh, characters with deceased characters they had a connection to, right? And then they chose... Like it worked really well until it didn't. And then all of a sudden there were these strange pairings that didn't make a whole lot of sense. John's staring at Liana or something. I like I don't know. It, it worked <laughs> for the most part. But I liked it. It's just then it, we segue into the party scene, and I was like, well, uh, getting drunk and celebrating life because you survived the battle or you survived the battle with undead because they're not they're barely even talking about the fact that 99 percent of the people out there this is their first time seeing anything supernatural <laughs> right right. They've, right they've only they've only barely had the northerners here have only barely had some like a month a few months whatever the time has been to wrap their heads around a dragon <laughs> now they have <laughs> seas of, seas of whites un, you know tsunamis with unexplained uh Vertical or vertical and horizontal motions, and they get through it, and they're just well, we we survived. Let's get drunk. That's fine. I kind of expected more people to be sort of haunted by what they experienced. Yeah, I guess I yeah. see that. I mean, it's one thing to see a white staggering around, and it's another thing to have the wall of bugaboos just tearing you. I mean, it was. I mean, granted, it's different production teams who produced one episode to the next, mm-hmm. but it was brutal. It was like horror movie brutal. In the last one, and then here they're right. like, "Well, <laughs> lucky us, I guess." I don't know. There's just some tonally. It just felt like such a um, a jump from the effects See, I, of what had I, just happened. To me, it felt perfect because that's how the North has always celebrated things like that. I mean, that's they're they're kind of the barbarian North, so to celebrate life with a feast afterwards is a very Viking type thing. So yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I think the other thing then is that um, then they pooled a bunch of hookup scenes together. And each of the hookup scenes felt like they would have been more powerful had they been a, an element in another episode or something, right? But when they were Wasn't all compressed together... just Jamie and, and Brienne? Aren't they the only ones that hooked up this episode? Well, and then there was Gendry attempting to do the hookup or the marriage proposal, and then there was... Oh, yeah. I guess and then there was Danny and Danny and John and Danny's little begging session. So it was just a sequence of. But those were just intimate conversations. But they were all. But they were all one after another. All the same type of the same type of experience, gang together. Yeah, and from, I guess a, I from an you. editing standpoint, I mean, that was odd to me. To me, like it just felt like. Okay, we've gone past the celebration time and into the oh, we're drunk and having serious conversation thing. Because man, that's happened yeah. at my parties before, where sure, all of a sudden everybody's having really super serious conversations instead of happy, fun, drunk conversations. 
I think I wanted some of the feast, drunken feast sort of scenes inter, interwoven with some of these interpersonal, uh, you know, love affair scenes. I, I wanted them kind of blended together as opposed to a bunch of drunk in the hall and then a bunch of private uh, fire fireside uh, gold channel scenes. I don't know. I just... To me, it was too close. Yeah, and I think that would have felt more off to me, actually. <laughs> that didn't happen at your parties? No. I mean, they, it's always, they're, they're always having a good time, and then they get drunk and quiet and conversationally. <laughs> I see. I see. All right. So what did you think about the scene with uh, Danny and uh, Danny and John, where she comes in and is like, are you drunk? He's like, eh. And then she moves right in. Do you think that she was stewing in the hall and then when she came in and found him and saw it, when she was testing to see if he was intoxicated that that was what she wanted because she was trying to make a maneuver to influence you know what she wanted him to do because that was kind of the I, way I interpreted it I don't know that I read that much into it but I mean she clearly knew he was drunk she sat there and watched him drink with all his buddies and everything so i think i think that was kind of a foregone assumption for her yeah that she was going to walk in on him drunk and i do think that she thought that that would help yes sway his decision definitely some of the things they do with her i can't decide so you were saying before that you know you don't think that uh that danny has um well, the Danny's character's um, um, achievements are overstated, maybe, right? I think of it as she's a conqueror, but not a queen. She's always been going after things with her ambition, but then when mm-hmm. she actually has it, she doesn't know what to do with it. And she has exhibited that she doesn't have very good battle strategy. She doesn't have a very good sense of ha- a, a, a sort of a natural... Um, well, sense she of how good, to deal with people with politics. Right. She has no sense of battle strategy or how to deal with people with politics or how to uh, talk to people. I just, she literally is just good at doing what Danny wants to do and hoping it right. works out. Well, and what's <laughs> interesting about that is, um, especially as they – and who knows what they're going to do in two episodes left. And maybe they will be do a bait and switch. But they have seemed to be taken – um, several steps to isolate her, remove her advisors and her, her 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 foundation from her, strip her of some of her a lot of her power, and put her in a position where she's going to react with her sort of base instincts instead of a measured response to things. And mm-hmm. a lot of people are crying out as you know between what happens to so you know last season it was like oh the women of of Game of Thrones are in control, and then in this season it's been you know like the women are mostly getting killed or celebrating rape or all this other stuff that there's a lot of um criticism in that regard but about women and there is but i don't know if all of that's entirely legit I th- like i th- I, think I don't it's feel like sansa celebrated rape in any way at all she just i don't yeah i don't either but i but i appreciate i can see that opinion i can see well people are taking that approach i guess what i'm saying is i think that the reason why this feels strangely laser focused on breaking her down and pushing her into these this territory that everyone's like oh I hope she doesn't go mad queen and then they strip her down to the point where she's pissed off enough that she 
starts making some rash decisions. I, I think this is about the fact that for several seasons they wanted to they wanted to keep they made the choice to make her a sympathetic character in the narrative. They built her up as someone who seemed to have a legit some legitimacy to her claim and she had a lot of pillow talk about breaking the wheel and all this stuff. They've set her up as being a protagonist and now they're stripping that away when if you actually take some of the charm of the actress away and maybe some of that um, uh, editing bias away she's she's actually she is really a conqueror she's not really doing and she doesn't do a lot of the conquering (laughs) right right yeah I, i think there's a lot less to her than i think they've forced that positivity about her in previous seasons and now they're just sort of breaking it down mm-hmm. extra aggressively if they had two or three more seasons to do this i think if it was a gradual descent into isolation and and uh sort of resentment and that sort of reaction i think people wouldn't be as um stunned by it but i think it's because it's happening fast people are like well you know suddenly it's out of character but i actually think it is in character <laughs> the way she's yeah. acting so yeah it is i i mean the simple fact is is she's been aggressively Mamano's best since the beginning yeah. and she's never listened to her advisors for more than like the one time they can get through to her kind of thing right. and she's never had a good military advice she never had a general right it's just i think that people don't understand that yeah she's never had a good military advisor i don't think they understand that they the person they felt sympathetic about might be the villain i don't think they can wrap their brain around it the um there in previous seasons they talked about gray worm as being her military her head of military strategy and he's not <laughs> he's no, not he's, he literally just does what he's told right on the battle he knows what he's doing but he's yeah he's definitely not a a military advisor. Well, so let me ask you this. Do you think that Danny was pleading with John to keep the secret and let her continue to take the throne? Do you think that she was doing that out of... Do, oh, how do I want to put this? Do you think that she had strategy in that? And that she knew that her only chance was to get him to support her by keeping it a secret that even though he would support her, other people won't. But if, if she can manipulate him into keeping the secret, then maybe her plan goes forward. Or do you think that it was an actual vulnerable position for her at that time? And she was being honest and really begging. Cause I couldn't decide what was strategy. I, I got, th- I, I don't know, man, that's a, that's a tricky one because it is one of those things where, I think the writing was unclear more than that the character was unclear on it. Like, I really feel like her character is convinced that he has to not say anything because her entire everything will fall apart. She's not capable of understanding that there's somebody that can support her and trust her and, like, do for her what he wants to do that she can trust. I don't think she's capable of that because that's not what she was raised doing. It felt very inconsistent for her to fall apart like that because she has not exhibited that sort of vulnerability with and um, helplessness 
with any other partner with anybody yeah she's no, always she's one. always you know basically as soon as she got on her feet after the whole death Rocky incident the melty melty um you know she it, she has it's been about trying to maintain the power position in every relationship she's had even with right. the other people that she favored sexually she was still in charge and if they were going to take and so again this is about construction if they were going to make if they're trying to make the position that she really is deeply in love and that she is confiding in a partner about what she really needs and she's being vulnerable, then I think we needed to see more of her disassembly first. We saw her mm-hmm. fake smiling and staring and simmering in the scene. And then the next thing you see is this meltdown. You didn't see what appeared to be an, I mean, she was much, I mean, she's a good actress. She was much more convincing crying over the pyre than mm-hmm. this moment. And so if they, if it was supposed to be genuine, I would have expected to see more of her waver and more of her, like, be frustrated with herself or struggle or, like, address the fact that she was upset or frustrated that she was in this position, that she has to ask right. him not... And I would have thought, I mean, because she tried a little bit of, she tried a little bit of diplomacy with Sansa in, the, in two episodes ago. You know that she can technically try this. I I could imagine a scene where she goes to him and is like, you know, look, let's be, we have to be realistic about this now. If they were really a partnership, she would, have, she could, she could say, even though she thinks that she's owed this, she could still say, look, you and I know that the North will support one of their own, and that I'm an, I'm an outsider. The only way this is going to work is if you don't tell people your secret um, until we can get to a point where we can really stabilize the realm and all this other shit. And then who knows? You know, she like none of this was even t- approached on her end. No. It's just straight into you really have to not tell your family anything. And it was like, have you never talked to Jon Snow? Yeah. Ever? Have you literally never met this dude before? Because that's all he does. That's all he does. Like right? they, they have like a, like group diary. They write in, they, they don't even have their own diary. at, at Winterfell. I know. I know it's a group. Well, there was one of, one of the best Twitter responses to this was the, the one scene of him saying, swear, you'll keep the secret. And Arya saying, I swear. And then Sansa saying, uh, I, I swear. And then the next thing is group chat started by Sansa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So let's, so maybe, uh, do you want to talk about, I guess we should talk about Jamie and Brienne before we move on from that. What, uh, how did you, how did you take this scene of following what happened in the feast and then going back to her room in this little drunken encounter? How did you feel it was presented and what it was trying to show about those two characters? I don't know. I I mean, I think that they have some genuine affection for each other and with good reason for it. But I think by the same token, Jamie's also being whiny, jolted little boy who finally thought he was getting everything he wanted and then had it taken away because he had to do the right thing. And... I don't know, man. I'm really torn about that whole thing because I really like Brienne and I want her to have what's best. But if she had any sense at all, she would know that Jamie's a horrible choice for her. <laughs> so, yeah, I found it one of the most complex. I wasn't I wasn't 100% on the execution of it, but just in terms of its concept, I thought it was 
very interesting thematically because it reminded me of a number of times in my life where I had an intense, uh, you know, I had an intense crush or I, uh, or, you know, I was obsessed about someone and either I was never able to realize it, you know, into something actually happening or the few times I did and it didn't go well, right? Like there was something messy about it, even at, at the time it's happening right before, before you get the whole betrayal, even when it's happening, you're watching it happen and you, you're like, you know what? This isn't going to go. This isn't going to go right. He spent a yeah. lot of, of the previous two, the two episodes ago. She, he had this whole, they had this whole arc where he was going through and having his moments with these different characters. He had, he had affected very, very seriously. And it was sort of his little redemption arc. And then when mm-hmm. they're having that little hookup, I remember I was watching it and thinking to myself, you know, it's, it feels like times in my life where I finally got what I thought I wanted and then could even feel at the time it was happening that maybe this is not, you build someone up on a pedestal or you've, you've let something reach an intensity where it just feels like it's critical mass. And then you actually act on it and you're like, well, you know, we're ignoring some very basic fundamental things. What's that? Are you referring to when we first met in person? I understand. It was a, it was a pivotal moment for us. You were 100% everything that I hoped for and 133% everything that I had never known that was missing in my life, Chris. How you slammed the corned beef and cabbage that night, you know, uh, it was a sight to behold. But I mean, you know, it it was... With that whole thing was just the fact that he wasn't like, look, I have to go kill my sister. <laughs> because that's clearly what he's going to do. do you, so you thought so? going off to support her. I, there's no way he's going to support her. What, I mean, well, what prompt, what would prompt him to go to support her? Well, okay. But, but going back to the, the scene, in my eyes, I saw it as her knowing it was, I, I saw Brienne seeing this as the guy that I've pined for for all these years is drunk enough and desperate enough or in a certain emotional state vulnerable enough to actually act on these things I know it's not perfect it's not real mm-hmm. but I'm going to take it mm-hmm. so that in that scene I believed it okay. then when then when they show that they've continued and they're, they're sleeping some more, you know, you have that, there's another scene and then there's more of them sleeping. And then you see him get up and leave and you have this big, all this big confrontation at the horse. That's when I was, I was a little unsure of was Brienne. Cause I think it's timing and editing was mm-hmm. Brienne fully aware that whole way that it was never going to last with them. Cause my, my read on her. So a lot of people are really frustrated that she's like, you know, in a house coat, crying and he's leaving I agree you know the super super brand is reduced to this but I saw this a different little differently I saw it as it's important to show that even powerful female characters can be vulnerable Mm -hmm. to be powerful doesn't mean you can't have emotion and this is the same argument that's been against Captain Marvel everyone's like well you know I I don't know I just I think it has to has to do with execution I felt like she was crying not about him leaving her, more that she was crying that he doesn't believe in himself, that he can have this, that he can walk away and he can have this life, that he's earned this, that she's seeing him 
leave this and go to something that is going to be terrible, whatever it is. Maybe I'm misremembering, but what caused what caused him to take off? Sansa said they they said that uh, the fleet was attacked and the irrational event the, the irrational oh, attack so we haven't talked about that. it occurred. Okay. And Sansa said. Well, I had planned to be there to watch your sister's execution, but now I may not even have that chance. And walked away. I had some thoughts about what that was supposed to mean. But I think in this whole thread, this whole episode, I think Sansa was being very little fingery strategic mm-hmm. in what she was doing. She thinks that that's how to she could be successful. She was totally on. She was playing the game more than anybody else. And... Mm-hmm. You saw the emotion in her eyes, and you saw that she was really conflicted by what she was doing, but she was doing what she felt she had to do, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that she deliberately triggered him. Because remember, he was he was accepted because Brian vouched for him, but he has been a bad right. seed since day one for them. He's been directly related to things that have happened to her family forever. Mm-hmm. And for her to say to him, you know, your sister's going to be executed, I think she was triggering him, and that... And Clearly, it worked because he left. So, I read that completely differently. Really? Tell me. I read that as Sansa saying, I wanted to see your sister die, but it looks like I may not have the chance. And that I think your sister just fucking won. Ah. Uh-huh. They took Masande, they killed one of the dragons, they ambushed them, they wrecked the fleet, and John's a week away on horseback. Yeah. So or, a me, or a day away. Or a day away. Well, yeah, depending on the editing, certainly. Uh, but to, I think to to me, like Sansa doesn't really care. She obviously doesn't want Cersei to win, but she doesn't really care if Daenerys wins either. That's for and sure. So In fact, me, she doesn't want her to. Yeah. Right. Like I read that scene as as uh, I just forgot his name, Jamie. Jamie reading the tea leaves as I'm the only person that can kill my sister. That's what I said. That's what I did too. I don't, I think Sansa was triggering him though, because she wanted him to do something to go to. Hmm. I thought, I thought she was triggering him to leave because she wanted him gone because she didn't like his influence in Winterfell. However, I took his, his takeaway from what she said as, um, I, I need to finish what I I need to clean ultimately clean up the mess that I was party to, and when he was making his little speech to Jamie, and he's saying, "Oh, I don't deserve this," and this, I did terrible things, and blah blah blah, and admits for the first time to someone else that he pushed a kid out the window and all this other stuff, I felt like he was what he was saying. They left it ambiguous on, on purpose, but I felt, I took it as he was saying, "I I am I am as guilty of sin on all this stuff." And I need to be the one. I need to undo what I have allowed to happen through my actions. I need to go take mm-hmm. care of her. Like, there's a bond with them that is so tight that if she's got to die, he's got to be the one to do it, which is kind of what you're saying, too. Um, a right. lot of people a lot of people have assumed that he's just going back to fight with her. And if you think that's the case, then it's internally inconsistent that anybody would let him leave. <laughs> like, what? Right. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I agree with you. I think that he's going to go back to try to kill her or at least be there so that he can. 
and it'll be a race between him and Arya to see who does it. I don't know. But I don't know. I think it's going to get really ugly messy in the end. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it already is, honestly. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe we talk a little bit about the Sansa, Arya, Bran, uh, John powwow at the tree. Okay. They didn't show him... So he's like, you know, awkward, awkwardly like, oh, you swear, you pinky swear? You know, I'm going to tell you a thing. And then he kicks it over to Bran to say something. And the fact that they didn't show it, to me, was a production choice because they don't want to keep telling the same story over and over again. Yeah, I think so too. But the omission and the choice of how they did the omission has sent a lot of people into a tailspin. Really? Uh-huh. We, I read a lot of stuff where people are just like... Did he really, you know, what did he what did he say? What did Bran really say? What was their true response to it? Because on the one the hand, they're saying... They've said, like, nine times in the last three episodes. They really didn't need to say it again. Well, I think that there are, like, a lot of things about this episode. A slight change in how they... Uh, slight editing would have made a long... A big difference. Like, for example, we I never agree. even saw a reaction. Like... Think about the trope of, you know, I, I, I tell a thing and it, you can't hear it from the audience, but then you see someone's reaction to the thing and you know kind of what the content was, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't even see any reaction. What we saw was, John, you got to stick with us. Starks stay together. We're all going to stay together. Be honest with us. And also, we're all Starks and we're going to stay together. And then the next scene was, I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> Arya's gone and I'm not coming back and yeah. Sansa is like hey Tyrion guess what I heard do you know what I mean yeah. like it was the editing made it so that it was so abrupt that that whatever um, thematic flow was happening there whatever emotional core was in that scene felt really disconnected in the next scene yeah that's true to me to me like I bought Sansa running with that information because that felt mm-hmm. consistent with her character at that time for the yeah she believes that it's for the best that John takes that throne and the north has an anchor point there she doesn't right. want him there but if she has to have him there she wants him to be the one on the throne and so and right. she find and she sees Daenerys as a threat and so therefore i could see her doing that but the arya thing even if I it's that she's, but even if it's like she's, well, not, my next task was to go finish on off my list. Oh, that's fine. But we didn't have anything. We had no filler there. She says the North sticks together, and the very next thing is I'm not coming back. I'm on my own. So there was like a I, gap there. I see, but I don't think she's on her own there. I think she's going off to help her brother eliminate the threat yeah. kind of thing whether yeah. it's to put him on the throne or just to keep him from getting killed i don't know but staying together just, and staying together two different things right i understand yeah yeah the mm-hmm. uh the hound and and sansa in the feast scene which sparked so much controversy about yeah people believing that she's saying the rapes, were, the rapes were fine because they made me who I was. I don't know. So I, I think that, uh, well, someone else that I was listening to made a, um, I think they were describing what someone else said to them, but I thought it was pretty accurate. It was that it was internally consistent in the story that Sansa would say that and feel that. It felt right as a scene. But when mm-hmm. you, when you peel the onion back about the production of the show and you know the ongoing criticism of an all males right all male writing room 
and all male production team and how a lot of choices such as, you know, you, you know, the whole argument about, well, if there's two people of color on the show and, and, you know, you kill one, you just killed half the people of color on the show, you know, like if there were more people of color, it wouldn't be such a, a, a galvanizing thing. But when you take the one uh, female of color who had been a slave and you kill her off in the episode, you, that choice is a very, very deliberate one that hmm. some another perspective would be maybe you don't make maybe you don't do that if. You know. Anyway, I'm not saying that. That's... I see. I don't feel comfortable talking about that kind of thing because I know I'm always on the wrong side of it because I don't have that background as far as that's concerned. Sure. But you're looking at it and ignoring what color people are, and you're just looking at it purely from a storytelling perspective. Right. There is well, no one they would have killed that would have affected Daenerys the way that Missandei dying did. Except for the fact that there was no construct that would... Well, first of all, it made no sense they would have even been able to capture her. I Nor agree would with have that. Made, and, there, and it made no sense that uh, that Daenerys' people would know she was captured and not drowned somewhere. And that she was so... The only way I can rationalize that Cersei knew that she was a tool was that when they went to bring the white to her to beg for her support, she saw... Right. She let Masande talk, and Cersei looked at her. So there's that. That's how I was. I was able to stay in that scene. Yeah, there's a chain of command right there showing that Masande is very important to Daenerys. But going to, I don't have any doubt about that. Is there? Well, uh, there is some, but I mean, to me, that's I didn't. I feel I was fine with that. However, going back to the previous thing, I think that it's about the the baggage that's well, not baggage but it's it's what's brought to the it's what's brought to it as a cultural event versus what the actual story is saying so i thought it was okay i thought i made sense to me what sansa was saying but i understand why there's the reaction from the viewing audience from a lot of quarters that are saying um when you're when you are an all male writing staff and you have a character that you've repeatedly just put through the ringer uh, to then write that she's uh, that she's like I'm cool that that it seems tone deaf from that this is happening in 2000. Well, they wrote it late 2017, right? Seems a little tone deaf, and I think that that's an accurate. Criti- I think it's a reasonable criticism of it. I don't know that mm-hmm. I would change it, but I think that there was, I think there's some risk there in what they did. I think it's accurate for the character personally. I agree. But- I agree. I agree. She's, I mean, so the fact, so part of this is the sensitivity of sexual crime, right? Because um, Arya's had some really terrible things happen to her. And for the most part, except for this weird period thing last time where everyone's outraged that she had a sexual encounter, Arya's been basically decimating half of Westeros with her, <laughs> with her actions. And everyone's like, sure. But in fact, she's pretty heavily traumatized by a lot of things she's experienced. And in most of these characters, if you look at all of the Stark children, they're defined in a lot of ways by the horrible things they experienced when they were young and the people that they were uh, taken in by afterwards. So it just happens to be that Sansa's were both um, sexual crime, and that speaks more to what the writers decided to put her through specifically. Because she could have just been brutalized in a lot of other ways and manipulated and broken down without it being sexual crime. But because it was sexual stuff, it has a bigger trigger, I think. And that's what makes it more sensitive. But I agree, it made her more a little fingery in the end. 
Well, I mean, her her simple line was, without Littlefinger, Ramsay, and the rest, I would have stayed a little bird all my life. Yeah. Didn't say it was good. She didn't say it was a good thing. That it had, To me, like, none of that glorified what happened to her or anything. It just means she isn't a wide-eyed innocent that's going along with everything, which is what she was prior to all that. So I don't know. Sort sort of um, sort of related to that concept of people bringing in their experience or the sort of cultural filter on the story. A lot of the thing, a lot of the arguments about what's been happening with Daenerys are about this idea that she's being portrayed as a female leader who is showing emotional irrationality and weakness and then is being uh, sort of sexually prejudiced against or like, you know, sort of it's based on her gender that they're like, well, she's being irrational and crazy and she can't be trusted. But if she'd been a male character making these moves, people wouldn't have even thought twice about it. And I didn't, I I haven't had that. I haven't had that read when I watched the show. No, I don't think that they're saying that she's irrational. Um, because she's a woman. I think that they're saying she's making decisions. We we advise against something and then she does it anyway. Like, she's being irrational because she's a Targaryen. That's nothing <laughs> yeah, to do with the yeah. fact that she's a woman. It's, That's right. Yeah. yeah. It is yeah, I mean, if it had been I mean, her brother was more irrational and assumed that everything should be handed to him like she is literally just doing the same thing her brother is just on a more successful scale a more successful scale <laughs> i think the only character that would react to her the same way regardless of gender is Varys. i think that Varys's approach i mean he's been through many regimes and i think his approach has been you know you, you become a destabilizing component then i leave you i'm gonna right? shut or, you down i'm gonna shut you down he works for the realm, whatever that is, which is interesting, though, because, you know, he's constantly working towards maintaining some sort of stable power structure, which is very futile. Um, mm-hmm. And yet he should, of all these people, he should be the one who's saying, you know, he should be an anarchist, right? He, I know he's gotten a lot of power by being in the courts of these different rulers, but, you know, from what he's seen I, in the period of I time that he's been alive. He is kind of an anarchist. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he supported a a random white-haired girl living with a barbarian so that's pretty (laughs) really think about it (laughs) well so when he was talking to Tyrion, we'll just jump to that then when he was talking to Tyrion, um and he makes this you know his his big line which was the when they were in the echo chamber having everybody listening well remember Uh everybody everybody who could who could care was killed supposedly except for all the major characters so anyway all the guards were killed there are right, no little right. bir- there are no little birds <laughs> so <laughs> when he makes his his sort of impactful line that you know maybe have you considered that the person who doesn't want to be on the throne is the one who should be on the throne mm-hmm. um that was being uh i think that was being telegraphed pretty heavily that he is suggesting that john should rule instead of daenerys but mm-hmm. my take on it was that he was implying that Tyrion would be in a position. Mm, interesting. So, I mean, I, I, that's how it's I, in any way. 
I think I think it's such a crapshoot, and I and apparently the Vegas odds are all over the place, which I think is hilarious that they even have them. <laughs> but yeah, I was that's... talking to my coworker about that, and I said I've decided that uh, either John and Daenerys are going to um, kill each other, one or the other will be killed in the King's Landing attack, and one way or the other, either they're both dead or John will retreat back to the north and abandon mm-hmm. his claim. But it's going to be Tyrion who's on the throne and is going to be the stabilizer. Um, that I, I took that position. I planted the flag. <laughs> I said, that's what I'm going to say. I mean, two seasons ago, I was hoping for this democratic solution that they were going to break the throne down and melt it and say, you know, we're going to make a council. I still think that's where it's going to land. I hope I it think, does. <laughs> I think Tyrion and Varys and all those guys are going to do a council. I think uh, John is going to have to kill Danny. I think Jamie is going to kill Cersei. Uh, I don't know that Arya is necessarily going to kill anybody now. Uh, maybe she'll save the Hound from the the mountain or something like that. I was wondering uh, if she's going to die. Euron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see her kill Euron or somebody like that. And then I think Jon's going to fuck off to the north and hang out with Tormund and the the wolves in the far north because he made that uh, Tormund made that very telegraphed line <laughs> yeah. of episode that was like you. You're a true northerner. <laughs> when he did that, I imagined that the next cut scene was that John was wearing uh, Danny's white fur coat. <laughs> you know? What do you mean? Laughing along me, in the woods. Just, oh, stop, but continue. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was stroking my coat when I said that. There's a <laughs> lot of, um, I mean, I, I will admit that during that scene, I was astonished that John didn't go up and, and uh, actually interact with ghost at all <sighs> but there's a lot of a lot of stuff on the internet about people being outraged about that they know people get upset about it and yet they still persist in it which means it must have been tried and it must look awful like I they don't must understand that though i appreciate could. that they can't film the i appreciate they can't film the the wolf in front of people but what the fuck they they make dragons know. they do all the other stuff what well, fictional beasts are supposedly much, much easier to give personality to than things that exist in real life. But, I mean, how many shows have we seen like The Jungle Book? And yeah, right. That's like, right. like those have life and personality to them, and they're not dogs. I, It's just, it's totally inexplicable to me. I think yeah, my I reaction to it, and probably yours too, as a pet, as an animal lover, and you specifically having dogs was that it was a, a gaping inconsistency in John. Just from it a storytelling was, yeah. standpoint, it was like, what the fuck? But at the same time, I think what they were trying to do, they've claimed it was a special effects and stuff. And I think, you know, issues with making the composite work, whatever. And I think that that's bullshit. Because they could have very easily shot him just hugging a husky from the back. Or a, like, a, right. like, a, a, like a Malamute or something, or an Akita from the back. Right. And or then just let him pet Danny's coat and... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think they could have. I think that what they were trying to do, what I think the reason they're stalling on it is I think that they were trying to show him being unable to face that choice. Like he couldn't fucking look ghost in the eye, really, other than that little weird, like your little gif of the mountain man, the bear man. You know, like I feel like other than that, he, you know, like he couldn't really deal with it. So he was basically like, just just go. Right. Because they know he's going to end up in the north with him in the end. Right. Right. That there's going to be that payoff. Exactly it. This because I think they've decided. Body. What's that? 
this isn't goodbye, you guys. This is just farewell for now. <laughs> yeah, I can see a white. There's a whiteboard somewhere with the illustration that says it starts with John picking up a puppy and it ends with him, you know, walking yep. like a long shot of him heading up into the snow with a mostly one-eared uh, direwolf. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that's exactly what's going to happen there. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, anyway, anyway. So, so let's just talk about Euron for a minute. Oh, what the fuck dot com? I mean, okay. I appreciate the fact that uh, I appreciate the fact that we're supposed to accept teleportation in this world. I mm-hmm. appreciate the fact that we're not even supposed to think twice about the fact that in the entirety of the King's Landing establishing shots, plus all the books, it's this heavily fortified seven gates up against the hillside forest beyond and then in this scene because it's in a cool effect it's like this barren wasteland <laughs> well they're they clearly at at Cersei's summer cabin that <laughs> they have an interruption at because that's that is there's no fucking weight that's King's Landing it's like a, a three story rock wall in the middle of nowhere <laughs> but it has the parapets <laughs> But it has yeah. the towers and parapets that look like it. You know, it's just it's like, come they on. Built you know. 7,000 scorpions, apparently. And I mean, come on. Okay, so let's, wait, wait, let's go back to Euron, because yeah. it only gets worse. <laughs> so His scorpions are badass. I will give him that. The tentacled uh, ends on them, fantastic. <laughs> well, yeah, you and I were both like, hello, <laughs> right there. <laughs> Acceptable. However, however <laughs> even among the sort of Pirates of the Caribbean era of pirate uh, dramatic action scenes, a fleet creeping out behind a rock is pretty hard to (laughs) sell to me. But when you do it, when the fundamental characters to be affected by this are several hundred feet in the air, (laughs) I'm like, it was like, I don't understand how they plotted that out and said... This this is going to make sense to anybody. I, I I mean, it certainly was a shock when you're watching it. Like, oh shit! <laughs> but it, yeah, but it took me like three seconds or something to be like, whoa, 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 wait, hey, a minute, wait a minute. How could that? How could they have been hidden? Yeah. It didn't make sense. And then no, it was instant awful. takedown. And it's absolutely takedown. like like the dragon didn't veer into the boats dramatically. Nobody like she didn't even scream about it. She was just like, "Oh, I'm gonna get you." Oh wait, never mind. I'm not gonna get you. I'm out. And, and how about they, the was, fact that they were reloading like they were auto crossbows or something, and they don't? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, were just I, like, appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate the fact that they scaled up the design as an up, update from the weaknesses of the previous one, right? Like the previous ones were powerful and effective, but they weren't decisive. And so now these are like 40% bigger or whatever. And there's a lot of them, but, but, and also, yes, the dragons are WMDs. And I get that. And it's been an imbalanced thing and they Mm -hmm. want to even the playing field a little bit. But the fact that every one of these boats had a giant, uh, scorpion on it, which apparently has no recoil, no recoil. Rapid the boats were apparently sitting super, super solidly in the water and not like going up and down and moving at all because, you know, water's a very firm surface oh, yes. for oh, yes. Can you imagine how bad badass it would have been that they lo- they fire it for the first time and the boat just fucking swerves and dips and you know <laughs> they lose half their guys in the in the way. I mean Yeah. But the other thing is they're they're shooting at aerial targets like as if it's nothing 
Right. They just plowed through it. And the one thing I will accept is that they did uh, telegraph pretty strong that Rhaegal was injured and was doing his, doing his best to rally, but was barely. Like, he didn't have much maneuverability. He didn't have a... He was a sitting duck. And they did. However, she didn't even... I mean, it was like there was no reaction. It was like, oh my god. And then he's down. And it right. was a very underwhelming way to take out a dragon when they spent seasons talking about how menacing and horrible these things were. And the takedown in the north was cool because it, that was what was so powerful about it. That they that right. the, that the Night King could take it down with the special spear and then mm-hmm. animate it. That was very, very powerful storytelling to me. And it was very uh, suspenseful. Yeah. For them to just take him down with, with these bolts made it feel like an artificial leveling of the playing field. It didn't feel right in the world. And also, then they immediately turn and decimate the fleet with them. So right. if you're gonna, if you're gonna suddenly give everybody cannonballs, which they don't have, you're gonna give one side the instant invention of of heavy yield cannon or something. Um, yeah, that's and fine. I have to say, like, like that doesn't ring accurate to me either because. Like, giant arrows are not going to do the same thing that a cannonball would do, would it? Correct. I mean, yeah. I'm not, like... Well, so they showed they showed that the bolt... They showed that the bolt fans out. Like, it, mm-hmm. it, 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 it extends it into, like, this weird X of... Just like the, just like the, the tentacle motif. Right? right. It opens up into an X when it launches, and it spins. Okay, so it's... So, you know, you got your auger bit situation going, but you're right. Right. I suppose. That's not the way... It doesn't have the mass that a cannonball has. There's a reason cannonballs were what they were. But also... I think they show a single dude loading it, so it can't be that heavy. Well, that's the thing. (laughs) He's got a couple of dudes loading it for him while he sits up there. I took this note to myself at the time. that was that... What did I say? Uh, Euron was just like grinning like an idiot sitting on it like he was uh racing a go-kart <laughs> like, just yeah, like he just seemed like he was in like a fair somewhere like <laughs> like he was he not like um, dude that got his first riding lawnmower and totally. was like oh my god dude check it out <laughs> and i and i appreciate there's a fine line between showing someone that is that like unhinged and thrilled and it just is in it for the adrenaline constantly versus yeah. an idiot but you know he's an, he's an idiot, so yeah. he's mischievous. He's um, mischievous and he's menacing and he's been a shit. But it's really frustrating to see them. It's it's. I mean, there's so much Deus ex machina in this in this episode in this whole season. But they continue to pedestal him in a way that isn't deserving, right? I really, I really hope Arya kills him. Like, I want that too. One guy, I would love to see her kill. And if he beats her, it will be really inaccurate because he's that cocky bastard that's gotten away with way too much for way too long. They, in, I mean, it's the worst scene for me emotionally in all of Game of Thrones, which was that sequence where he decimates the Dornish fleet and he's run one of the sand snakes through. He strangled uh Jessica Hardwick Hedwig's Hardwick's uh um Jessica Hedwig's uh character with her own whip and he's yeah. doing something to the other one. And it was so instantly like out of the story I love that. Well I, I as a composition, that. as a composition it was cool. 
but he like, wasn't it's presented one of the best like pirate fighting scenes I've ever seen. But it wasn't. But, but they didn't <laughs> earn it though. He was yeah. just like he was some swaggery guy, and he kills the he kills the elder in the iron in the Iron Islands, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, he's he's irreverent, he's punk rock." But next thing you know, he's a Superman. And right. He's just like one single handedly just decimating. And I granted they didn't ever show the Sand Snakes as being as uh, effective as they were supposed mm-hmm. to be. But the no, bottom line, yeah, so a lot of missing missed opportunities there. But nonetheless, I don't care. Even if they're mediocre. He's attacking multiple, I and mean, they do this a lot in the show. But he's attacking multiple targets and just plowing through them. And mm-hmm. It wasn't earned. It, what, nothing about what he's done, other than his bravado, has been earned. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, here he is shooting these things. Somehow they're on a rocking boat. They're hitting these aerial targets. Uh, also, I know that we're not supposed to care about these things, but it goes back to my brain. I I appreciate the fact that I shouldn't hold this against them, but they would not have the tensile strength of any fiber to be able to create a crossbow of that scale, right? So it would have been more convincing to me if they invented, if a Kyburn invented gunpowder, right? <laughs> like, yeah. for yeah. this purpose, like, I got an idea, <laughs> you know? Like, that would have been easier for me to swallow than giant crossbows. I mean, I guess if it's like a braided steel cord of some sort or something, but... I don't think so. And, <laughs> and... I saw it. I see giant scorpions. They look cool on first blush. You're like, that's neat. But, it, but, but as I think about it, it's, it reminds me of the, in anime, when characters have giant swords, you know, these incredibly massively oversized swords that they couldn't possibly lift, let alone wield. That's what it looks like to me. It looks yeah. good when you draw it. doesn't make sense when you think about it. <laughs> Especially when they appear out of nowhere and apparently just decimate everybody. Yeah, yeah, I I have to agree. With now, what do you think this. about Daenerys flying at them and then banking and not doing anything? I don't know. What I do you think about her not going around the back? Since there's no way the ships could turn in time, nor could they swim. Right? The yeah, scorpions. and they don't they don't appear to have any kind of maneuverability that can just swap directions real quickly. And even but, if they could swivel the scorpion, they take out their their masts, right? But we have we ha- yeah right. Uh, we have established the fact that she has absolutely no military know how or has any idea what she's doing. So yeah, yeah maybe and she it- panicked. Maybe she panicked, or maybe it was self self preservation. I don't know. But it was like a one of two back to back missed opportunities that baffled me. Well, and it just really bothered me too because the when Viserion died was Viserion. I don't remember who, yeah. which is which, but yeah, anyway, when that one died, you felt her her pain and her agony of her losing her kid, and this time she was just pissy about it, and they didn't like show much of it at all, and it just like it it, it did not have the emotional impact that the other one did by any significant amount. I agree with you, and in fact, what was powerful about Viserys being attacked was that they seemed invincible. Yeah. So for the Night King to take one down with an ice lance was the big fuck, right? Like, oh, yeah. fuck. Like, if he could do that, and they're not the ace in the hole that they thought, now we're in trouble. For this right. scene, for this fleet to just, oh, surprise attack, here's some bolts, take it out, felt very yeah. underwhelming to me. And and I and you know how I feel about missed opportunity. I, I was imagining how incredible this battle sequence could have been of her going Mm -hmm. both dragons and they're going around in loops and blasting with fire. And these guys are launching these, these scorpions and 
I mean, you remember with Indiana Jones, right? Where they spin the spin the gun around and blow off the tail, the tail right, yeah, of the plane. Can you ima- can you imagine that sequence? You could see that you could see things going awry. That Neuron is so um, rabid in the moment that he's putting himself and his crew at risk and causing his own ship harm because he, you know, fucking his own shit up, trying to right. get at these dragons because he's so one note, right? Oh, I would and, love to. That, yeah, and even if the scene is supposed to end in Rhaegal being killed, you could see it after a series of attacks that he, a lucky shot gets it in the neck and it's down. Yeah, this was just like, yeah, like that's how it should have been. Absolutely, right. same effect, same end result, but as a spectacular sequence. And you can't tell me that they're just saving all their budget for the third and or the third and the fifth episodes because you know right. they had a lot of money to work with here. That and could have been done, like like. 45 seconds if it was shot right it wouldn't have been a significant amount of work to really make that work uh, and similarly, yeah, been- similarly in the last episode when Rhaegal was very badly injured by all of the attacks from Viserion right mm-hmm. he was injured fighting 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 and then he was injured enough that he was grounded Everyone's, I've read a lot of stuff and I've heard in a couple of podcasts we were talking about they didn't understand why John perched him on a rock or uh, perched him on a parapet and watched for 20 minutes. And granted, he could have lit the, he could have lit the moat for them, but that's sort of the it was, it was the, snowy. That's armchair foggy. quarterbacking, right? It, man. Huh? What? it was snow foggy. You couldn't see. Yeah, yeah sure. I was their entire plan revolved around the onion knight waving torches in one tower. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but 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 even so, he got severely injured fighting hard. And mm-hmm. and then they showed that he was injured going into this episode and was giving his you know, he's giving it his all. And they're flopping around and he's kind of learning to stabilize despite the holes in the wings and they do this thing for him to just take a bunch of arrows and go down. It was like there's no gravitas to that. But if he yeah. had, if he had been, when 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 um, when Daenerys's dragon was when Drogon was being covered in white and he's trying to shake him off and eh, you know mm-hmm. like barely trying to you know and working his way up and trying to shake him, that was really powerful to see that even this massive thing could be overwhelmed, but it's going right. to go down fighting and basically survived it. If Rhaegal in this episode had been going aggressively, just going at the ships over and over and over again and maybe she's even calling at him to pull back and he doesn't listen and is going at him and going at him until he finally takes one too many bolts and goes down that would have been incredible because now her own child her own child sacrificed itself for her not just randomly was taken out of the sky like instantly was a pet right but if 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 Rhaegal had had agency I can't believe I'm saying that um, (laughs) it would have been more much more powerful emotionally I agree. It would have been amazing. Like I'm, I'm disappointed that you didn't write this scene better, Tom. Oh yeah, I know. They didn't ask us. No. Anyway, okay. Not. So then we get. So then we get to the biggest mystery of this episode. We teleport to King's Landing, which has teleported to a desert wasteland or a country home, whatever you think it is. <laughs> and we have yeah. this mysterious sequence where Danny. And everyone who's important to her contingent of, I mean, from Cersei's perspective, because what the fuck does mm-hmm. she know what anyone's doing? Mm-hmm. Here's Danny and her war party. 
a small Having contingent a of Unsullied. What? Yeah, mm-hmm. a small contingent of Unsullied. Danny's dragons off in the distance, which is an instant defeat. Not like. that far. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean an instant, uh, <laughs> instant passive maneuver, and Tyrion and everybody, and they just waltz right up. And I and I can see the writers imagining this whole confrontation and how it's going to be like this negotiation that fails and oh everyone's so oh well you know and we're going to have a big battle. But I could not, for the life of me, from beginning to end of the sequence, I could not understand why Cersei wasn't like fucking kill him, <laughs> like just take him all out. Right, right. She has no honor. There's no guest right. They haven't shared salt and poop or whatever it is. There's That's right. literally no reason, and she's violated all of that a dozen times now. That's right. It was trading on these feudal con. I mean, concepts that go all the way up into the into the 20th century that you would mm-hmm. have this these rules of war. Right. It, it, there's yeah, no rules with Cersei. No sense to me that they didn't, the second that everything fell down, they didn't start shooting their giant crossbow bolts with unerring accuracy at everybody <laughs> on that little garden field there. It, it made absolutely no sense to me. You can see Tyrion believing, having convinced them that, she, that, that there's protocol. And you can mm-hmm. see Tyrion even believing that he could waltz right up and have that con- confrontation and not... He, he he was nervous. He wasn't sure he if was. he was going to get shot because he was approaching past the Kyburn right. line, right? But, you know, ultimately, right. though, yeah. he was still banking on this, this protocol. And there's reason to imagine that he would convince himself that protocol would apply. But mm-hmm. there's no way to rationalize that Cersei would follow it. Right. Yeah, there's absolutely no reason to expect that from her. I loved the scene from a construction perspective, though. Like, mm-hmm. I thought it was beautifully shot. The scale of things, the desolation that they've applied to suddenly the the site for King's Landing and this, this, this idea that they would go and have this one last parley um, before sacking King's Landing... Um, as a presumed likely doomed effort. It was neat. Mm-hmm. It was neat to watch how they did it. And it was interesting to watch Tyrion do his best. And mm-hmm. I didn't buy that. He, I didn't buy his lines that you're really not that monster and you're all that stuff. I believe that what he's saying is you don't have to be that. And he was right. trying to soften her. I felt like he was trying to weaken her resolve enough to make her think about the baby, think about her mortality, make her open to the idea of an, of a solution that was anything other than a apocalypse, right? Yeah. Um, didn't work out that way. <laughs> so, not so well, no. <laughs> what an accidental uh, strategic hit that he talks about the baby in front of Euron. Although Euron didn't even blink, so maybe he didn't. I don't know that Euron does a lot of math. (laughs) (laughs) I immediately imagine Euron in the face of Julia Roberts in that meme where she's got all the math all around her, you know. Is that Julia Roberts? Yeah, that's Julia Roberts. I've genuinely never known who that was supposed to be. Yeah, it's Julia Roberts. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was an Aaron Brockovich scene, but I don't know what it is. But anyway, that's what I immediately saw was all the math parabolas and shit around him. (laughs) Yeah, totally, yeah. It was a very powerfully constructed scene. I absolutely love Kyburn in his power position walking out to make these... As the mouth of Sauron? Yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, the the Lord of the Rings stuff is pretty hot and heavy here, but I liked that 
I, I, I just the nature of the dialogue. It was well written dialogue, I thought, in that scene. Yeah, that that we, scene we, was. We, I had no complaints dialogue wise, logistics and logic. Nah, but dialogue was solid. Yeah, we demand your surrender. Oh, well, we demand your surrender. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, uh, I loved it. Um, it was so. It, it felt so tonally perfect in that moment. Now let's talk mm-hmm. about Masanda. Okay, so Masande. Part of the problem watching the show is you know what you want to happen, and then there's what what does happen, and when it doesn't follow what you want, it's easy to criticize it. But mm-hmm. I'm having a lot of trouble rationalizing that Masande took the approach that I'm just going to bravely go into that dark night. <laughs> like it just, I the hand was you, on her shoulder, ran, the hand was on her arm or whatever. Just grab Cersei and jump, or just jump. Yeah, yeah, like jumping makes all the sense in the world in that scene right there. It's like 23 feet to the ground. And then that, in that particular part of King's landing, apparently it's just, it makes no sense to me that she just sat there and was like, Oh, Drakkar is not even loud enough for her to have actually heard that either. Like it was symbolism for us as the viewers. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if she shouted that triumphantly and then jumped, even if it meant jumping yes. to her death, I think yes. that would have been really dramatic. It would have been. And also, and again, even if you take away our cultural perception of this show and slavery in, in, in how we know it in the West, okay? Mm-hmm. Even if you take it within the construct of this show and her being a slave who was born into and enslaved in servitude until she was freed, given this position with Daenerys, given all these, um, a power position and respect. And then now she's back in chains and completely helpless. Mm-hmm. The agency in her jumping would have been very powerful. And it, and it I has agree. its roots in, yeah. and it has its roots in projects that go back a hundred years in media, both on right. both sides, on both sides of the racial divide. Right. Mm hmm. She did fucking fuck all. It was, I'm just going to be, I'm going to be proud in my execution. I'm not going to cry. Right. Yeah. But even, even more, I was just imagining a scenario where she grabbed Cersei and pulled because yeah. can you imagine if Cersei was taken down in that, in that gambit? And then mm-hmm. they're just like, okay, we're fighting for, we're fighting, we're fighting a beast with its head cut off. Right. That would have been really interesting too. That would have been a, that would have been a surprise. <laughs> Well, we but I not, think we did not get that surprise. The whole construct of Game of Thrones is that if you beat the king, you beat the city, kind of thing. So I don't yeah, think that would have yeah. worked. Yeah. But I would have loved to have seen a little more rebellion in Masande besides just yelling Tracaras. Well, and, and that's the thing. It's editing. If if she if uh, if Cersei was farther back and not right there on the parapet where she could be attacked, and if Masande was standing there with someone holding onto her neck, the, right. the scene works entirely. And if you the, know the, if the mountain was holding onto her fucking head, huh? Right. I, it's especially troubling to me too because Masande's always been one of the characters that has cautioned Daenerys and actually had Daenerys listen. And what she just did was shout out, "Kill them all, burn them all." Yep. Basically. Yes. 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 Yeah, I don't know. And then after I all of that, the, I did love the meme I saw where. It showed uh, John Wick with uh, <laughs> Grey Worm's face on it. <laughs> <laughs> that I like. Um, after all of that, then 
then uh, then the northern force can just can just walk away. Yeah, they're just and, like, well, shit. And no. granted, it was Daenerys's. It was uh, em- Amelia Clark's best facial expression in the history of, of uh, Game of Thrones, though. Yeah, she in, in very impressively pissed. It was 100% cut a bitch. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, there's, a, uh, there's an interesting, this goes back to the, uh, the cultural uh, cloak of the show versus the actual narrative, but from the cultural cloak of it, it's interesting that you have two fe- very strong female leaders attacking each other and breaking them down and you have a female leader eating another female in its in their conflict with another female leader like there's there's a there's an embedded extra layer of realism to that because because of the largely patriarchal nature of our and and male dominated nature of our culture when women mm-hmm. attain power it's ruthless and it's really ten- tenuous and there's a lot of real cruelty that women do against women in the workplace and yeah. and also yeah. they do it in and they do it in fourth grade I'm afraid to tell you and so <laughs> there's something very specific about that I was imagining because it's really hard to pull some of these politics out of it when I'm looking at it I'm, I was trying to imagine if one or the other of those characters were a male instead of a female how would the scene read so if Cersei was a, a male doing that it would have been you know evil 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 guy and there's this whole surge to uh vindicate this this sort of this gender specific attack if Daenerys was a guy and those two were women it would have been really murky but as mm-hmm. the fact that it was all three women in that scene of significance um, I thought that was really interesting because it spoke a lot to other things outside of the show itself, and maybe that is pushing too far out of the narrative. And certainly, you and yeah, I were really not no, I armed to talk about it, but. but I also am not in a position to make any kind of judgment. So, yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't judging. I'm just saying, I imagined the viewership watching that and thinking that, you know, thinking about that, uh, not us. <laughs> I guess I'm just still well, thinking about. I'm still thinking about ghosts do it because you do have kids and you've got a daughter and that does make you change the way you think about things certainly and also i live in california so we're just uh soft yeah, you're soft inundated. progressives about everything right yeah um, so big you don't even put air conditioners in your windows you just get house fans poor house fans <laughs> so poor house so amazing. And you asked me, so Chris texted me, he knew I was getting a whole house fan in. And then he texts me, did you get your whole house fan? And then the next thing he does is send a photo of an old timey fan with a whiskey and a revolver and whatever the hell it was a playing card. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know it took me like, from. I looked at it like 10, 10 times. And then I was like, Oh, oh I get it. <laughs> so it took me a while, but I finally got there. Yeah. And yeah, that's what I'm doing. So anyway, so leading up into this final, so, so episode five is supposed to be the big, you know, well, everyone's saying, oh, the final, final, final moments of the episode are going to be un- haunting, or final episodes of the, final moments of the final episode of the series are going to be haunting, but but everything is about how episode five is supposed to be even bigger than episode three was in terms of, uh, you know, action. Yeah. Um, what do you think we're going to see in the sacking of King's Landing, other than mysteriously rapid-firing scorpions on 180-degree turrets? 
360 degree turn. Man, I don't know, man. I I've I've got to be honest with you. I've really checked out on a I know lot you have. of it, and it kills me because I've read Game of Thrones since the first book came out in paperback. Right. And for me to be this ambivalent about a TV series that I've loved yeah. for this they really long, lost you in this, in this season, right? Really frustrating. Yeah. But as like, the season specifically, it's really is it's this. Well, I mean, last season went a little off kilter too, but yeah, this season in particular has really gone out of their way to just, I I really think ninety percent of it's not in the books. No, and I agree like, with you. So, so talk about your talk a little bit about that because you texted that to me late at night um, in the haze of a Zima hour. So talk talk a little bit about your thing about how the Night King. Night King. Well, the Night King uh, doesn't exist in the book. Right. I mean, and, yes, and you were positing he never will. Right. I don't think he will. I think the White Walkers will continue to be a threat and that the long winter with the White Walkers coming will be a threat. But I feel like it's like a looming thing that may not even get addressed. And it's certainly not going to have these massive, massive armies the way this does. I think it's a little more of like an existential like physical manifestation of winter coming than it is an actual big bad. It's not a Buffy villain. Now it's something else. Now uh, thinking of maybe the book version and thinking about the film version or the TV version. Mm -hmm. Do you think the long winters, which have Mm -hmm. been described as being a cycle that the, that the realm has dealt with over time Mm -hmm. is the long winter a manifestation of this unusual, surreal, almost, almost our history, but not world? Or is it because of the existence of the Night King? In other words, when the Night King is killed, do we lose the 15-year winner or not? Not because I, I don't think so. I, I feel like that's just a artifice of the Game of Thrones universe is that so, they have these long winters. So if that's the case, did... Did the cycle of very long winters and very long summers or whatever, except for beyond the wall, was that always a foregone conclusion? In other words, was was the south, or I should say the north and the south, south of the wall, were they always prepared for a long 15-year winter regardless of a Night King threat? Because they didn't seem very equipped to deal with winter with or without zombies. It was sort of like it's suddenly happening and everyone's like, ah, it's fucking cold. They didn't, other than Winterfell, you didn't really get a sense, certainly you didn't get a sense from King's Landing that they were ever anticipating 15 years of winter. There's all this shock about how you see, you know, there's images of, like, visions that uh, Daenerys has of the throne with snow on it. Oh my God, what does it mean? But wouldn't wouldn't the, the internal logic of the show be that King's Landing would be in snow for 15 years? That's all I got to tell you. What? <laughs> what, what? Winter, winter well, is coming. There, there's. It's always been a thing. Like Nan, old Nan, told stories about the long winters that she had when she was a kid. And I think, I mean, I don't think winter was ever to the dr- dramatic degree that it will be with the long winter. But there is definitely occasions in the history books that they've put out the fire and blood and the 
I don't remember what the other one's called, but they talk about long winters in that. Mm. That's why the whole sweet summer child is a thing. It's just, it's an artifice of the Game of Thrones world that I really like. I think it's a cool touch. I really do too. These like weird extended winters that you can't depend on the white ravens and all of that. I think it's an excellent little thing that they do. Well, I mean, from a narrative standpoint, the idea that you take that that dread of being in the middle of winter and then you extend it for even it is which seems like an eternity, right? You in Idaho, when you can't get to your garage and your whatever, your microphone's frozen and whatever, you you're like, will this ever end, right? You say that right. to me. You text me routinely and say, will this ever end? Question mark. <laughs> yes, exactly like that. So to uh, with all, like uh, the snow emoji and then tears. So the idea that in this that you would have a very long summer that's idyllic, and then that is dashed on the rocks of a very long winter, which seems like a, just like the like the worst the worst thing to have to deal with this forever. I like that construct, but what I but what I also took from that, for at least from the show version of this, was that. People didn't believe in the Night King and all the images of the White Walkers that were they were being told about because it was like the hoodoo stuff that would come with it. It was sort of like, you know, fairy tales right, about I, things that are I in mean, the dark because the dark's scary. Well, the White Walkers are definitely not this like the winter is definitely like a physical reality in their world. But I do think that the Night King is more of a fairy tale right. as far as they're concerned. But we're also talking about a nation who's fairy tales and reality or whatever it is has stretched back thousands of years. Right, right. And there, I mean, the bulk of the populace gets their stories through oral right. tradition and not through being able to read and like read histories and stuff. So, I mean, it's pretty easy for something that was history to become story in that kind of situation. Well, you set aside the fact that it's been a few hundred years or whatever it is since there's a dragon, and now the populace believes that dragons were a fantasy. That's maybe that's a um, maybe that's an affect of oral history, and maybe that's plausible mm-hmm. that you would that quickly forget magic in the world, dragons in the world. Okay, mm-hmm. but if the oral history of the world suggests that people know that there will be long winters, mm-hmm. it allowed them to be. Uh, dismissive of the threats of a night king coming down and white walkers and an invasion of whites and all the stuff that were early on being warned about that no one would believe that was more believable to me because it sounds like the kind of boogeyman that would come out of the natural occurrence of a long winter like i it was easy for me to imagine that most average westerosi people would be like Sure, there's a big bad behind the hurricane, or oh yeah, totally blizzard yeah. or whatever. Like that was very consistent. Like if you if I lived in a tropical climate that was constantly being battered by huge monsoons, and someone was telling me there was a monsoon god, I would be like, well, that makes sense, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. So that part really resonated with me. I like that about it. And what I was thinking was, I wondered if the long winter, like how far that affects it, like. The, the principal uh, population center for Westeros is the south. So how mm-hmm. far does the winter go? Do In the books, for example, do they do they suggest that King's Landing is normally affected by hard winter during that period? Or is it mostly the northern territories that experience it? Well, yeah. in the books, 
winter hasn't been there for quite a long time. And so it doesn't really get discussed much. I haven't read the history book ones. My wife has. Mm, okay. So I just know of those from what she's told me. Um, but I, I mean, it shows it snowing in King's Landing ah. in the show. So like as Jamie's leaving to go up north, it's starting to snow in King's Landing. Right. But then in this season, we cut to King's Landing and it's all summery. So I <laughs> Yeah, and it teleported. But I mean, yeah. but that's but again, it's there's snow in King's Landing and there's a breach of the wall. So right. I was trying to figure out as a viewer, I was trying to figure out how much of what they were experiencing in the in the physical realm was because of the Night King's army marching south and his ability to manipulate weather versus what they would already expect to be occurring anyway. Right? In my because in my opinion, it's it has more to do with the fact that the Night King exists because winter is here yeah. and his strength is, is greater when it's winter. And I, I think the whole reason he hasn't come north pri- or south prior to this is that their magic wasn't back. But now that the dragons are there and magic is stronger, huh. it all like like they didn't talk about any of that kind of stuff until there were dragons, really. So, so I, so take destiny aside, because mm-hmm. destiny seems to be a, a trigger word in Game of Thrones, at least the TV version, right? And because p- characters like are either violating destiny and 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 uh, prophecy, or they're not, right? But my read from last season as a viewer was that the Night King's triumphant march south was absolutely due to the protagonist fucking up, because the single thing that made the difference setting aside the fact that they haven't shown the Night King teaching them how to get on barges or whatever and go around the edge of the wall, <laughs> there's an invisible line there. But the single thing that allowed him to breach it was that the heroes went north and then lost a dragon, and then the dragon fire blew the wall down. So if they hadn't uh, gone north with yeah. the dragon, that wouldn't have happened. Because I mean, they were climbing the wall. Yeah. What? I think I I think that they would have found a way past the wall even without the dragon, though. Personally, but they didn't show evidence of that. They showed them trying to climb it. They showed giant, giants stumbling over towards it. But they were constantly about talking about the enchantments of the wall, the enchantments right. keeping things off. But that was before. The, like they what? never showed White Walkers at the wall at all until they showed up with the dragon. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, if they didn't have a dragon, would they have been able to breach the wall? You're saying they would have climbed. World War Z style up over the top of it or something and gone through it. But yeah, the, the night, the night's watch has believed that they had enchantments on that wall that would not let anything past. And I think they used to, they used but to. I think the reemergence of magic in the world when the dragons were hatched gives them enough strength. That's why the white walkers never came South to begin with mm-hmm. is because magic hadn't really existed in Westeros until the dragons came back. And why do you think that's important? Sense. Like, why do you think the magic, why do you think magic? Uh, well, why do you think dragons are magic? And why do you think this has anything to do with why the night King would go South? I think that thematically, the I mean, I think the Night King had always planned on going south, but he didn't have the strength to do so until magic was stronger in the world. So you think the magic influence, the magic uh, enhanced him? 
Correct. I think, yeah, I think the rebirth of dragons was the rebirth of magic in the world. That's interesting. That's interesting. Because I would even suggest the, that they're they, all like linked somehow. Right. The magicians in the House of the Undying talked about how they were stronger when the dragons were born. Hmm. That's interesting. So there are like actual references to magic being stronger. That's interesting. I really, I never really thought about that as being the trigger that brought them in. I mean, why else would the Night King have just dicked around up north for a thousand years? He had all those dead soldiers he could have summoned. They were stealing babies from Craster for like 30 years. It, it, there has to be a trigger, and I think it was the birth of the dragons. Interesting. All right. Well, I mean, that, yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Well, so do you think there's any significance in the fact that um, Melisandre does her thing, takes off her, takes off her shit last season, last episode, walks out and dies, and then specifically we have this poignant conversation in this episode where. Um, Davos is like, well, where's the fire god or the light god, the god of light now? You know, when we need him, we still need him. Where, where are they now? Um, do you think that there is some? What do you think is the significance to that? Do you think that um, that the god? Well, of light, I think that whole think religious Davos, aspect. I think Davos is a guy that just shits on religion no matter what. For one thing, I he's, like he's not somebody that believes in it, and he's any excuse to be skeptical of it. But I don't know, like, to me, the Lord of Light doesn't really have a lot of bearing on it because it's literally just the Red Priestesses and stuff that seem to believe in him. Yeah. So I don't know. I have no idea as far as the gods and how they work in in the Westerosi world. The new gods versus the old gods, the seven gods. You know, uh, a couple days ago on another ride, I was thinking about the Melisandre scenes in the last episode. And one of the things I really liked was that she kept doing her enchantment and then started getting more and more scared and anxious and wavering about it. And in the last two times that she does her enchantment, she's she, her voice is cracking. Like, the, the, the whites are all over the wall, and she's like, or the, the barricades, whatever, and she's like, ah! and she's trying to do the thing, and she's really desperate. It was like the emotional yeah. surge of her desperation and her panic and then it works. And then, like, something about that was really – it, it kind of reminded me of, you know, when when they're like, we're going to overload the reactor. You know what I mean? Like, it was just like <laughs> she – her cool had dropped and she was desperately, desperately believing that it would happen or desperately begging for it to happen. And then it – Yeah, she needed it to happen. Yeah, I thought that was really good. I, I think uh, – I don't remember the actor's name for her, but I think she did an excellent job in that last episode. So do you, uh, do you have a red tentacle? We haven't done this in a while, but have you, do you have a red tentacle for this episode? Something that this you really like? Really this episode, you're going to do it to my least favorite episode. <laughs> yes. Uh, That's what makes it interesting. Is it the I mean, random? I, is it the, the random Brom uh, just showing up with the crossbow, walking in out of nowhere, having a little discussion, that, and leaving again? That scene is the one that pissed my brother off more than anything. He's like, it really that, bothered me that, too. So out of character for literally everyone in that scene. It made Let, no sense. Let's talk about that. He even when he was given the promise of a of a of a castle and title from Jamie in that one episode a few seasons ago or whatever it was or last season 
the impression was it was like nice thanks for giving me that but he was riding along even though he was a paid mercenary he was mm-hmm. it was implied that he was in it because he was supporting a person right and then this whole when she handed him the crossbow two two episodes ago and was like here kill them all and i'm going to give you this and this and he's like oh sure i thought he was just like uh yeah <laughs> right when he shows Dude, up yeah. and is actually throw, waving this thing around, let alone how he got in there how, or whatever, let alone we don't know who's even serving the beer. Uh, yeah, really. It was so tone deaf. Like you said before, it's like someone was described the characters in a in a Wikipedia and then just wrote this. It yeah, was they're so like, telling okay, so the way of a, yeah. This guy's a, a super self-serving mercenary. And they're like, all right, got it. Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. Terrible. I could it was not like believe- you, if Euron had a crossbow, you would have believed that scene. But it didn't yeah. feel right for him. He's had more uh, really deep in-the-shit experiences with those two people than anybody else in the show. For him to just right. show up and be like, oh, you know, and then this whole thing about shooting the crossbow to show he's serious and blah, blah, blah. And he hates Cersei. There's no reason for him to support her. Right. It just is totally and, illogical. And even then... When he show, I mean, can you imagine a variation on this? If if you have to get to the same place in the end, mm-hmm. do you imagine a, scen- a scenario where the scene is where he shows up and says, "So guys, Cersei told me I have to kill you guys, and I'm going to get this. Um, what do you have to say to that?" And they were to say, "We'll double it," and he'd be like, "Great," <laughs> you know, yeah. that would have made sense without the implied threat that he would really do it and this weird vitriol he had against Tyrion and all this that didn't make sense. On top of that. His solution to that little negotiation was, okay, I'm going to go hide, and then when all is settled, either I'll <laughs> right? get I'll get the land A, High Garden or whatever. No, no, I'll get whatever it was, River Run or whatever it was he was offered if Cersei wins. Yeah. Or I'll get High Garden if you win. So I'm out, and just tell me what happens. <laughs> like, yeah. I could see some writer wow. writing that thinking that made sense, but from the the show's construct, I I would have I would have believed it a lot more if he was like, High Garden, okay, I'm on your side now, and I will fight for you. Like, right? He's fought for he's fought with Jamie before. He has not been established as a mercenary. He doesn't want to stick his neck out. He'll stick his neck out for reward. So why would his he reward the- be just I won't kill you? There was the scene in the last season, again, that season started to fall apart, where they're fighting the dragon after Drogon is mm. like cleared the wagon train. And there's the whole thing where he's like, here's your gold, and but you can't have it yet because you don't get the castle kind of bullshit. And he like sends him off to do something with somebody else. And so I'm worried that that was where they're like, ha look, this is showing how mercenary he is. Uh, I don't know, man. I'm like really that whole scene is awful. I That's just the funny thing you say that though. Uh, your brother felt this was the scene that was the biggest trigger for him. The scene you described, or that episode in the last one, the the uh, the gold the gold road, whatever yeah, it was, gold, like the gold that, train, yeah. the gold train, whatever it was. Medium, medium quality on this podcast. So <laughs> that was the scene that was the lowest point for me. Other than the slow motion uh, stick fighting of the Dorn Plaza fight, <laughs> but the the biggest <laughs> low point for me was previously was that uh, he'd like there's a dragon duck and he grabs him and jumps into what's very clearly a shallow river and then all of a sudden he's in like 
you know, cinematic deep waters. It's the shape of water all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. And they're not. And by the way, they're not in armor plate. By the way, yeah, <laughs> like apparently, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, right, I am so, on the same page as far as that's concerned. You're not Matt on the same page with your uh, red tentacle because you haven't identified one. Uh, y- yes, I did. What you just forgot it. What was I don't it? know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Roll the tape. Roll the tape. Well, if you were to pick um, another one, what was it? Tentacle. Oh, okay, that's fair. Um, God, I hated so much of so much of this. <laughs> I know. Uh, Tentacle scorpions, maybe. Yeah, I, I mean, I love the detail on those. I think that was excellent. There were a couple of little snippets of conversation that I thought were great. I really did like a little bit of the party scene stuff, but honestly, mm-hmm. I guess the eulogy and the pyres at the very beginning were probably the best part. There's a funny thing during the feast where uh, Kit Harrington did this. He almost did the the pantomime for throwing up, like <gasps> when uh, when Tormin was doing more of his deep drinking. And this time, it was definitely supporting what you argued last time, which was you said that it was always drinking wine, and I thought he really was drinking giant's milk, and I thought I saw milk, and it may have just <laughs> been like uh, feverish flashbacks to Last Jedi. I don't know, but. In this in this one, he's like pounding the 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 horn, and you see John kind of like hey, like he just has to look, yeah like yeah that face. It's, so it's act total buffoon in yeah, this yeah, yeah. this episode. <laughs> you could be a, a king or a madman. So my red tentacle is Kyburn's low key swagger, man. All right, I That's fucking fair. loved him coming out. He wanders out, and he's like he he came from a point where he had very little power and he was kind of the weird guy in the corner and he's become, now he's going out and representing as the hand he's in that position. And I loved his, that actor's delivery was some of my favorite in the episode. Like he's just like, eh, you know, and he's like, don't you care about all the kids that are going to be burned or whatever. And he's like, you know, whatever that's material, <laughs> raw material. Don't worry about it. Like everything about his demeanor in that sequence was fucking rad. And I almost swear that he had a little bit lower cut V in his robe. Like he was just a little bit more, you know, <laughs> he unbuttoned it just before he went out. He's just yeah. like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's like, this is depravity and I'm here for it. You know, like, uh, okay. yeah. And so what about, so this is the harder question. Can you identify a black octopus for the episode, which is something you like the least? Oh, come on. <laughs> uh, 47 the last minutes. 40 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, man, that's a hard one. I guess I'm going to have to go with the whole scorpion maneuvers at sea because shooting a flying dragon is completely insane to me. They can't see you. They can't see you until you're there and close range. While you're on the open ocean in a boat. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so my mine were the parley in, in general because it made no fucking sense whatsoever, and then also the sneak attack of the fleet. Yeah, so yeah, we're definitely on the same page with that. All right, well, so uh, in a few short days, we're going to be faced with the biggest of the biggest episodes, possibly the biggest fucking Game of Thrones episode that's ever existed, bigger yeah. than any other one. They will like quite literally have other episodes of Game of Thrones show up on screen, and they will eat those episodes. Uh, do you think there will be any surprises in this? And if so, what do you think they will be? In other words, what what do you think their little twists will be? Because I feel like that they're, I feel like they're setting us up for a surprise, and I don't 
you know, I don't know. I don't know what Man, it is. What do you I think really no, I genuinely have no idea. They've they've taken so many characters off the table that would have otherwise been cannon fodder to me. Yeah. That I don't even know who's going to die in these next episodes. Like I think less will die than we think because I think that they're expecting everyone thinks everyone will die. Well, like John is walking off to battle with just I think Davos is the only named character he's with. Right. I think um there are no wildlings. So we're talking about a siege, a pissed off angry queen, another pissed off angry queen. Uh, <laughs> it's a whole different movie that you just described, actually. Yeah, really. San, my San Francisco aspect of that was just like, yes, that was a movie I would love to see. <laughs> Met Gala versus Met Gala. That would have been amazing. <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm really... I've lost the thread as to where they're aiming for at this point to the, I, I know. Okay. Here's where I think the whole thing's going to end. This is my prediction. As far as the whole shebang, I think Arya is going to, I think Arya is going to go up against Euron at some point. I think she's also going to assist in Clegane bowl in some yeah. capacity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Jamie is going to kill Cersei. I think Daenerys is going to go buck wild and Jon is going to have to kill her. And I think that it's going to end with Jon going up north and playing with Ghost in a field somewhere, throwing a rubber, a rubber ball. And <laughs> who's a good boy? I don't know. That's. Yeah, that's like, I legit have no idea. It seems like all of it's going that direction, which makes me think none of that's going to be accurate. Yeah. Where, what is your prediction, sir? Well, for a long time, I had this idea that we've seen the dragons acknowledge John multiple times. And we've mm-hmm. had these things like, oh, the guy, he's being celebrated for riding a dragon. And she's like, fucking A, what the hell? Um, <laughs> I had this idea that. There's going to be a point where they're going to have a a, a tête-à-tête, and he's going to, and they're going to have this confrontation, and she's going to tell Drogon to attack him, and he won't, and then John will say Jacaris, and Drogon will turn on Daenerys and kill her. I think I like this idea that that her own dragon will burn her. And I don't know if she can be burned by dragon fire or whatever. I don't know what that whole thing is because she came out of it several seasons ago naked with eggs. And I don't know. But I like this thematic idea that she's gone so, you know, she's gone so over the edge of what killed off the Targaryens in the first place that John's control over the dragon, like the dragon's understanding that he was he, he has a deeper connection, something, something that that betrayal would be something thematically that would be tantalizing and that Drogon would turn on her. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen, but I like that idea. Uh, That's and then, yeah. yeah. And then the other thing is, and I don't know if this makes sense uh, in terms of the logistics, which I love so much because I don't understand them about King's Landing, mm-hmm. but I fear that Cersei's confidence goes beyond scorpions. And I fear we've shown that she's using human shields. She's brought in all of the civilians inside the gates. 
the mysteriously yeah. redu- this mysteriously reduced gates from seven gates to one gate. But the idea is she's bringing all the g- people in. But I think, or I was expecting that she's got a sneak attack, which is to bomb a lot of stuff with dragon fire and do another maneuver of that. I was thinking there's got to be more dragon fire at some point. Yeah. It's too much of a thing. It's a too much of a thing. It was an incredible thing that she did mm-hmm. on the, uh, on the temple and all that. But I see her being strategic enough because she's more strategic than any, anybody else we've seen. I mean, Agreed. she's astonishingly, yeah. act, astonishingly good at some of the choices she makes. So I imagine her allowing them in, and then detonating Dragonfire. And decimating yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I could see something like that being the thing that pushes Danny into something stupid, too. Seeing her killing all the innocent people yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. Because Danny has been accused multiple times of not caring about crisping civilians. And she may right. have a lot of pillow talk about how she doesn't intend to. Yes, John, I'm not going to sack, I'm not going to burn the city of all the civilians. Right. You know, it would be. I mean, really, she she has no hesitation when it comes to royalty, mm-hmm. but she doesn't typically kill just commoners, generally speaking. Well, and that was so, one of the fun things I, I actually really liked in those middling seasons. I liked I liked that she had trouble with how to establish a uh, gov- sense of government when the power structure was so... Uh, uh, Diametric when it was slavers yeah. and slaves, but I really love the idea of everyone turning on the slaves, you know, or, uh, or turning on the masters and you know, killing off all the masters and burning them and all that stuff. I thought that was cool. Uh, the other thing is, I there's Tyrion. Okay, so I said earlier that I can imagine a scenario where Tyrion ascends a throne, or we get the democratic solution that we were hoping for earlier mm-hmm. but there's a very strong so in this show going back forever it's all about the Starks and their family and what happened to them and their family bond but also the mirror image the the mirror universe Star Trek style of the Starks is the Lannisters right that they're mm-hmm. cutthroat and they're uh, inwardly fighting and they'll eat their young and they're very uh, aggra- uh, ambitious I feel like fundamental aspects of the finale of the show is going to be about the Lannister solution. It's going to be about Tyrion and Jaime and Cersei and how that resolves. And, you know, we've been talking about Arya, you know, being her mindset being she's going to take out Cersei. But I don't know. I think it's going to boil down to Jaime and Cersei. But I think Tyrion's going to be involved in the degree to which I don't know. But I think all three of them are going to be involved in a final solution. I don't know what it is. Yeah, zombie, ba- I, I zombie bear. I do see it really hard because he can't be involved in battle generally, and yet they've got to have him involved in some capacity. So they've got to find a way to get him into King's Landing so that he can have talking scenes. Yeah, yeah, right. I love, and I can't decide whether my ideas of Tyrion coming out on top are because I love Peter Dinklage so much. Yeah. I really, really, really do love him. I want to watch him in all his scenes. I don't care. Even when he's being a dickhead, I just I love him. And so I think my my mind is just, is just like hardwired to want him to be successful. I really – I keep uh, apologizing for some of his bad choices as, you know, he's he's learning humility and he's going to come back more seasoned. 
um, I do think that there's a certain degree of tragedy in his character in that he has hitched himself to a certain wagon and has desperately needed to believe that it will work out because if it doesn't, you know, his self-esteem is gone. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I loved in the last episode his bonding moments with uh, Sansa. And uh, it's very clear that they edited a lot out of those scenes in the crypt because there's, you know, it cuts back and there's a bunch of bodies and they're standing there and they have their <laughs> knives out and stuff. And I, I, my sense is that they really did fight for a while before the zon- before the crypt zombies died. And I would have mm-hmm. liked to have seen him actually attempting to fight. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I would have liked to have seen that scene, him and Sansa actually sticking with the pointy end and we didn't get to see it. But maybe we will. Do you think so we're going to see... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, what are your predictions? Like, pick two people that are going to die that aren't Cersei or Danny. Davos, because he's been... Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> on my list. Yeah. Which yeah. I don't want to see, but, you know, because I love him, but yes. Uh, and also, I mean, Grey Worm's going to go. Uh, I think Jamie's yeah, going to... probably. I think Jamie's going to die in the course of whatever happens in the finale. Mm, interesting. Um, I have imagined him making a maneuver, stabbing but not killing Cersei and then the, and then the mountain killing him. Okay. That he tries and then, or, and then the other thing I've been imagining is him, um, getting an audience with her and getting into her mm-hmm. quarters like he did before when the mountain was standing there. Right. right. I've imagined him that he gets there and he's like, you know, trying to do his version of talking her down and getting mm-hmm. close to her and then her stabbing him. Hmm. Like I, I could really imagine him being stabbed by her, even as he was trying one last time to convince her, just like Tyrion was. So I, you know, I don't know, I don't know about that. Also, I think um, uh, the Hound. I think the Hound will kill the Mountain, but will die in the process. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I'm really on the fence about whether the Hound's going to make it or not. He would be great if he if he survives. And he's like, fuck it, I'm out. <laughs> you know? It's sort of <laughs> like if the last scene is Podrick being like waking up in that in Winterfell being like, uh <laughs> with all these women <laughs> around him, because he had two at the end of this at the end of the feast scene in this episode, you know. It would be kind of funny if it ended up with that some you know, a minor character being the one that you lead on. But I really honestly think it's gonna be John and Ghost wandering off into the white, but fade to white. Yeah. Right. But anyway, who do you think is going to die? Uh, Davos is definitely on my list. Uh, if my prediction for the, the Democratic thing goes, then I feel like Varys and Tyrion have to survive. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. I think Jamie's going to die in some capacity. And I think the idea of Cersei stabbing him is really interesting. Thank you. Um, I'm waiting for the checks to roll in. I think Euron has to die. Yes, there's no. And he has to die dramatically. That. Yes, yeah. Um, and he has to. And he has to be. And it has to be his hubris. I mean, he has to be overconfident and then get taken out. Right. I got. I don't know. That's. I think that. I think that's really the butcher's bill for this next episode or two. I do have the suspicion, and I. I don't know, but I, I have this fear that he will be. Um, that they will convince him to walk away, and he will, right? Like, there's something about his yeah. mercenary 
they've applied so much to that that he is just sort of like whatever. He's such a, a loose unit that you could imagine that somehow he could be taken out. I also have this idea, and I wonder if they're going to bring Yara back because she took. They made a point of saying that she took the Iron Islands. I wonder. Yeah, if that's true. Out, but I hope. That, but I hope they don't. I hope they don't. And we haven't even talked about the Golden Company. Um, right. Uh, the, the other thing that they said in the last ep- or no, in this episode, when they were cautioning about the strategic logic of rushing down to King's Landing and and Sansa very clearly and reasonably says, let's let's recuperate a little bit mm-hmm. and uh, heal from our wounds before we do anything, although she then specifically didn't say that we'll join you on their way down. Right. <laughs> um, but what I... The other thing that they threw in there, and I can't imagine it was more... I mean, maybe it was just uh, fan service, but they said, there's a new Prince of Dorne. And I don't know who that is, because there's no Dornish nobles left. Okay. But he like, made the point. Yeah, he's not even important enough to name. <laughs> but 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 the fact that they didn't name him so it, it is priming for a what? Well, there's the Dornish fleet, you know, or you know, one of those things. So, uh, yeah, that'd be I, super annoying. There's more whips, <laughs> you know. I don't know. Yeah, really. <laughs> Look, it's the last minute save from people we've never <laughs> met before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, so anyway, that was uh, yeah. It was definitely a challenging episode. It was very mixed, regardless of whether you loved it or didn't love it. Um, you you didn't come out unscathed. It did. It it had a lot. There was a lot to unpack. It wasn't great. <laughs> yeah. In this episode, and and next one's gonna be the big one. Yeah. And uh, um, what Too if it's bad. like a forty-five minute fireside chat? <laughs> You're gonna be like stoked. Then I'll be like down. I'm totally yeah. okay with. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, you're like, is that green in the periphery of that image? <laughs> uh, so, uh, okay, all right. So that was the last of the Starks. So thinking about the title of that episode, who are the last of the Starks? Well, they literally say we're the last of the Starks in the episode. But uh, <laughs> I I mean, it's basically the, the four of them, I guess, if you count... The, the I kind of thought it was just Sansa and Arya because Bran uh, Bran constantly reminds everybody I'm not Bran anymore I'm the Night King or uh, the, the, the Three Eyed Raven and John even though he's actually directly blood tied to the Starks <laughs> more than he was as a bastard he's still uh, insisting to anyone who will listen I'm actually not one of you you know. So I don't know. I feel like that whole scene was them in the godswood saying, Look, it's the last of us. We're even if shit happens, we're still family. Yeah. Okay. The next episode is one hour and twenty minutes. One hour so and twenty minutes of badassery. It's Think a long game. They will ma- maintain our attention span on uh a big battle sequence uh for two hours. Now you haven't seen Avengers Endgame at the time of this recording, but this if I could tell you one thing, if I could tell you one thing about it, it's not a spoiler, but if I could tell you one thing about it that I think you'll appreciate, which is it's a three-hour movie that doesn't feel like a three-hour movie. And you and I have sat through a lot of movies that drag, and you're aware of the time, yeah. and you're aware of the the narrative thread being pulled apart. Uh, one of Endgame's biggest victories is that they create a uh, a structure that allows you to go along with it the entire way and not feel the passage of time, which <laughs> I think is unreal, unreal. Having just seen Heckboy, 
a week before, which felt like it was 17 hours long with 20 minutes of content. So, spoiler on that. I haven't seen uh, that either. I know. But anyway, so you have a lot to it's look forward to. It's in my dollar theater now, so I might oh, good. to that. You have yeah. to. You know what? Honestly, no. I mean, we'll talk about it more after you see it. But I mean, honestly, the it's not better than the sum of its parts, but its parts... Many of its parts are very good, and as Hellboy like fans, you'll like getting movie in a in a dollar theater too. <laughs> well, and it's going to be one of those. You know what it is? It's going to be one of those movies where you're going to watch parts of it many times in the future. Mm-hmm. You won't put it on and watch it. You're not going to sit in your little home theater and watch it, but you're going to be drawing or or doing other things and have it on and enjoying certain scenes of it in the way that we like a lot of cult movies today. That actually, if you sit down and watch them from start to finish, they're like, well, you know, it's not great. But they have memorable components. And that's what Heck Boy is like. Memorable components that don't hold together. There's no spine, but a lot of tissue. Now, that said, I really hope that the last, or the second to last episode has some surprises and some excitement. And it doesn't get mired down with uh, plot holes and logic inconsistency and that kind of thing or overly for some overly dark lighting or whatever else or coffee cups and all the other things that people are complaining about this season. I really hope this next episode is just fun. That's what I want it to be. Yeah, I do too. But you're, you're, but you're prepared for it not to be fun. (laughs) I'm, I'm concerned, but I'm, I'm ready to have a good time all the same. Understood. Now, uh, very briefly before we uh, end this episode, do you have any planned plundering items to talk about? What are you planning um, to watching plunder? Santa Clarita Diet right now, and that's oh, and Dev and I are actually going to try and get back together and record some stuff because we haven't done a podcast in ages. You have so not. we are trying to get together virtually um, because he lives in Arizona now, um, yes. but we're planning to watch The Ranger, which is a uh, female written directed. Uh, kind of 80s throwback horror movie that we're pretty excited about. The so Ranger. that's about it. So The Ranger, is that in the theaters or is it direct-to-video? No, it's on Shudder as of today. Uh, it was uh, it was released in a bunch of art releases. It was in a couple of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, film festivals. But mm-hmm. it wasn't available to see um, aside from DVD, but it's on Shudder now, which is a horror streaming service that's super awesome. So Santa Clarita Diet, you're on the last season, right? You're on the third yeah, season. Yeah, I'm just starting the the last season. Yeah, alas, oh, bummer that they canceled that. The second season is excellent. Um, the first season's good. The second season is excellent. I've only so, seen the first, so yeah, I need to. Yeah, the second season's better than the first season. Oh wow! And it's a, do you do you lose your steam when you find out something's been canceled, or do you not care? Uh, I I. Sometimes I like going into it that way because then I know that I'm not like I know that this doesn't end well. It doesn't end finally. It it has a cliffhanger, and going into that means I'm not going to be pissed at the end of it. So there's that. There's definitely (laughs) there's definitely shows on my list that once I find out it's been canceled, I can't even. I can't even. I have so many 
See, I don't have that problem at all. Like, as I have so many shows on my list that most of them have been canceled by the time I get to watch them. <laughs> so. Star Wars <laughs> is pretty much canceled before you get to. Well, okay. So my no, plan, plan. They've announced like stuff through twenty twenty six at least. <laughs> do you want to take? Do you want to take bets on between now and twenty twenty two when the next first mystery project maybe Ryan Johnson maybe not. It's either going to be the 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 uh, the Game of Thrones one, or it's going to be the the Ryan Johnson one. But did what you, do you see think? the leaked stuff for Mandalorian? Wait, what? There's apparently leaked footage from the Mandalorian. I haven't seen it. I haven't either, but I'd like to. Yeah. Well, so so between the two, between uh, Rise of Skywalker and whatever the next one is, what do you want to bet that there's going to be a Fucking kick-ass Knights of the Old Republic Ooh, game that comes out. That was out. loud. Sorry. What's that? What do you What do you bet that there's going to be a Hello? kick-ass Knights of the Old Republic? Hold on. Uh, game that comes I'm out having between the two. Difficulties. Okay. Am I no back technical now? Deal. No technical difficulties. You're fine the entire time. Okay. Well, I wasn't on my end. <laughs> well, that's sort of existential. But anyway, so between this last one and the upcoming next one. What do you bet mm-hmm. that there won't be a Knights of the Old Republic game that comes out to kickstart that as their next direction? That they go way back and do that. I think that'd be an interesting idea, but I also I've heard that at least two games that they had in progress have been canceled. Oh, totally. So they, I don't they, know they pulled them back in, and yeah, right. They're ch- completely changing the licensing and stuff. I just think. If you imagine the world of Star Wars, it seems like that's the direction that, that is untapped in terms of film, is that they're going to go back and do the, the Knights series of stuff. Now, that said, uh, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, I only, I only have a per- peripheral knowledge of some of that other stuff. I didn't read the Legends books and mm-hmm. comics and whatever else, but uh, playing this little uh, Galaxy of Heroes game on my iPhone that I do... I see all these other characters that are pulled in from all the extended universe stuff. And one of the things that bothers me is if we're already annoyed that Kylo Ren is another repeat of Darth Vader and all the cyclical stuff is irritating. When you go back a thousand years and you have dark dressed in black Vader ish Sith, and they just have three lightsabers instead of one and, whatever else Mm -hmm. and you know it all looks the same it's the same shit the technology doesn't look any different it's just the same story just another pass at it that's a fucking fail so my hope is if if Johnson because I think it would be Johnson if anybody maybe not but if whoever's doing a Knights of the Old Republic uh, film version they radically change it they change the look of things they change the type of technology they just make it feel like it's a thousand years earlier Yes, like I either want them to go a thousand years earlier, or I want them to go to the future. No more of this Rosencrantz and Guildenstern stuff that takes place during the nine or twelve films or whatever. I want to see the future that you've set up with these twelve films, or I want to see super super past stuff. I, as a student of history, I'm outraged when I see content that claims to be multiple generations ahead or behind of another thing and it looks the same. Like I was even struggling with Lucas's version of the prequels where he made some things like Naboo was shiny, 
but everything looked right. the same. And I was really fucking frustrated because in our world in a hundred years, because if you, if you, if you go, you know, by the, by the time technology has been refined to the degree to which it's mass, ma mass manufactured and utilized, there's 15 years of development to get there. Right. I mean, there's right. a lot of time that goes into building a thing. Right. And so if you imagine that the shit in the new hope era of films is all worn down and it's the, the old shit that they're still holding together. This, the, the hot shit stuff from the prequels should have been radically different. Like it should have yeah. only been the very fringe edge of the prequels design stuff that would lead into the new hope given a 30, 35 year difference in that timeline. So mm -hmm. I wanted even more of that Naboo style. Like everything is really dramatically different and all that shit gets bombed into ashes it's roman mm -hmm. style they got sacked it's all fucked up and all that's left is these little bits and pieces this plane from this culture and then this battlement from this culture and that's what is put together to make the modern era and that's what they didn't do and so if they do this knights of the old republic if they really do that i really want it to look really different i mean there'll still be laser swords and sith and jedi and all that stuff but it should look fundamentally different and in some ways more primitive than what Which was Which is kind of why I hope it isn't Ryan Johnson doing it. Tell because me why everybody has a certain amount of design logic when they're working on things. Yeah. Despite the teams that are working on it. And mm -hmm. he's done so many of the Star Wars films right now that I feel like any other movie he does is still gonna feel like a Ryan Johnson Star Wars movie. What has he done other than Last Jedi? Isn't he doing the next one? Uh, nope. Uh, it was back to J.J. Abrams. Uh oh, I don't know. So, in fact, half of the thing about J.J. Abrams' project is he's going to undo oh, things. Oh, yeah, they are Ryan undoing Johnson. a lot of this. Yeah, I do remember that now. Yeah. Right. Ryan Johnson's been spun off. So, so actually, uh, I, maybe Weiss and Benioff would be the ones to do Knights of the Old Republic. And Ryan Johnson's doing, you know gamblers and smugglers on the in the outer rim and that's that whole thing uh uh and that kind of ties to my rum fueled recommendations um and let me do that right now this was a, a smooth segue so i have been watching two things other than game oh Thrones. they've actually uh sorry i don't mean to interrupt you real quick but oh you they did. have corroborated that Ryan Johnson's trilogy has been canceled and what? that Disney is moving forward with the Benioff and Weiss trilogy that they're working You're on after kidding me. When was when was uh Johnson 18 hours ago they announced this. I don't I don't like it and I don't like it at all. <laughs> now that's it. That's it. Two things I've been watching other than Game of Thrones and that is uh Legion season 2. You've seen that. I have seen the second season, but not the yeah. third. Right. Yes. Because the third has not yeah. been produced yet. But yes, the second season. So I'm just... Oh, then I haven't seen the second season. So you saw the end of the first season. Okay, so I'm yes. two episodes into the second season. And I and uh, what I will say is, as I watch it, even the, though there's part of my brain that's annoyed that it's so psychedelic and twisty art house you know, can't make heads or tails of what's reality and what's not. I keep mm -hmm. wanting it to be grounded in, let's see the real world, and then let's see their crazy world and combine the two. That said, 
it's so much more there's so much more risk taking in that show that Holly's doing than anything else in anything related to any of the Fox properties that it's just <laughs> astonishing everyone just like falls all over themselves to compliment Deadpool about being irreverent and then mm-hmm. five minutes of Legion and I'm like what the fuck did I just watch like I can't get over yeah. how many risks they take on this show so <laughs> anyway uh, a couple episodes in it's great uh, of the second season and then the other thing I was going to say was uh, you know I've been working my way through the animated Star Wars stuff and I finished mm-hmm. Clone Wars and I've started Rebels and I'm in the third season of Rebels and I have to tell you you haven't seen any of these right? Nope in fact so, I, I I feel like I'm listening to a, another podcast that you enjoy the Daily Planet where the one guy talks about Star Wars all the time and, and the, the other, other one guy hates just, it. just listens yeah. to it yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, we're so cool. We call him the one guy and the other guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, listen, I got to tell you. Actually, like they spent they spent a good they did a whole caravan of gar- caravan of garbage talking about the early the first Clone Wars cartoon, which was done by the creator of uh, Samurai uh, oh. Jack Samurai Jack. And then I had to look it up, and I'm like, "Holy shit! <laughs> like that's very distinct, you know." But anyway, I I worked my way through all the Clone Wars stuff and got used to the animation style, and then I switched over to to Rebels, which has a different animation style. Got used to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to tell you, having done that three seasons into Rebels, I feel like the entirety of the two animated series tells more about Star Wars and builds more on the characters and fleshes it out in a positive way more than any of the movies any of the prequels and a fair amount of the other movies too like I've heard that from other people but and 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 as I've said before even from the creators themselves talking about them with me uh, in person there's so much room to breathe in the animated stuff there's some strengths and weaknesses to it, but the the bottom line is you live in the Star Wars world so much more and so much longer with those characters in the animated series and not in a cheesy way that it becomes really definitive about mm-hmm. a lot of the infill that they're doing in that story. So the Clone Wars is between the second and the third prequel movies, and then the Rebels is between the third and New Hope. And they've got a more powerful... Vader in Rebels than they have in the movies. And they have more um, meaningful issues with Anakin and that whole fall from grace in the Clone Wars than they do in the movies, which I didn't Hmm. give two shits about. So I have to say, I really do actually recommend watching both Clone Wars and Rebels. Now, again, I'm in the third season of Rebels now, um, but I really, really, really like it. And I think... There's a lot of stuff in Rebels specifically that's going to be tapped into for Mandalorian, because Rebels talks a lot about the the uh, the, uh, the well the Mandalorian people, and the end of the Clone Wars happened before they could show the siege of Mandalore, which is a big thing in that continuity, which they're going to come back to in the this new sort of six season of Clone Wars that they're going to do, but. Mm. Um, there's a lot of there there, and there's a lot of really great character designs in Rebels. And so here's the thing. Some of the coolest character designs in Star Wars have come out of Rebels, and I'm going to share them with you separately. But I'm hoping, hoping against hope, that some of those make it into Mandalor- the Mandalorian, because fuck me, they look so cool. There's so much good design work in Rebels that I'm like, how did they not 
bring this into any other movie or other other franchise property. When Disney took over, it's like they immediately hit the ground running and they're like, we're going to do this right. And they designed the shit out of it. Whereas Clone Wars is almost entirely everyone's in gray robes and then the clone troopers are in white and that's what you get. And when Rebels starts, the character designs are right out of the gate. Uh, very um, uh, enticing. And you get really invested in them very early. So, anyway. So, Rebels. Go watch them right now. No. No. I uh, watching Tom. My planned zombie. plunderings. No. My planned plunderings for, uh, for this episode will be two things. One, Barry Season 2. Uh, I I love Barry season one. Did you see it? Yes, uh, okay. the first season's excellent. Yes, I read a number of things online that said that some particular episode of Barry season two was better than anything that uh, Game of Thrones has done. So I have high expectations. That's a completely different type of scale, and I don't understand how they could make that statement. But okay, I'm ready for it. I'm here. Uh, <laughs> and the other thing is, uh, I don't know. You've seen the previews, of course, because you can't get away from them. But I'm interested in trying Chernobyl. It looks good, yeah. It looks really good. And it, yeah. feels too cl- and it feels too close to home, doesn't it? Yeah, it looks excellent. Uh, we just watched the trailer for the new It movie as well. That came it out just, yesterday? Yeah, it looks good. <clears throat> and you like the first the movie, right? You like the first one. Yeah, yeah, it's really excellent. Uh, it's way better than it has any right to be, honestly. As a non-horror movie watching person, should I see that movie? I don't know if you'd appreciate it, honestly. You'd probably like parts of it a lot, and then there would be other parts of it because it's all kids in peril that you might have a hard time with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Uh, there have been a few things I've seen in the last few months that I was glad my wife did not see. <laughs> so, <laughs> in that regard. Um, all right. Well, listen, so next time we talk, we're going to be reeling from the assault to our senses that was the amazing episode 5 of Game of Thrones which we will have very few faults to uh, quibble about and we will be so impressed by how they pulled the last few missteps out of their ass and made something really dramatic and exciting and uh, logically consistent in the plot what do you think they're going to call the episode I think it's going to be called uh, Green with Envy Okay, that sounds perfect. Yes, um, I'm gonna guess like Lion versus Dragon or Game of. It might even just call it Game of Thrones, possibly something like that. Uh, that reminds me. Think that now that you brought up the game, the Lion versus the Dragon. Uh, so whose eyes are whose in the prophecy that uh, Melisandre said with Arya? Oh, that wasn't a prophecy. That was just well. She said she- green. She said brown, green, and blue. And then yeah. uh, Cersei's green eyes. I have no idea what color her eyes are. Whose eyes are whose? What's Drogon's eyes look <laughs> like? I, right. Well, eyes anyway, yeah. <laughs> that's true. That's true. All right. Well, okay. There was a <laughs> there was an underwhelming denouement for this episode. That was, that was an on that was an offhanded remark that they decided to make important three seasons later. <laughs> I understand. I understand. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, okay. So that was, that was, that was fun. And, uh, we'll talk again, um, moments after the episode or days after the episode. Indeed. To talk about the fallout from episode five. Um, and also you need to get to the theater to see Endgame. You should see it in the theater. 
I make no promises, but I will try. But do it. How could you not do it? Just do it. I'm busy and broke, man. Just <laughs> Don't you have a movie pass or whatever it's called? Not anymore. Really? Not for months now. I don't even know if Movie Pass still exists anymore, but I canceled I think, once they started doing I think all that. that I think they're offering low low that. interest loans now or something like that. Yeah, really. They're they're giving you title loans for your 1964 Pontiac Capri, which I would actually enjoy driving. Uh, okay, yeah. well, uh, we do we do need you need to see it. We need to sit down and talk about it with uh, Blake uh, beginning in Simmons because he repeatedly texts me that he has very very strong opinions. I did see it with him. Uh, mm-hmm. And we sort of hugged it out and departed, and so it will be interesting. Why to didn't see. you record right afterwards, Tom? Geez, I would have liked to, but he had to meet, meet with like, he had to meet with the Department of Energy or something like that. So it was it was overruled. I'm, I'm not saving the world and that kind of thing. Come on, yeah. like, quite literally, he jumped in his Tesla and took off. So like, it was like that <laughs> into the but, air, uh, hover Tesla. You know, I thought a lot about that movie after I've seen it, and I honestly don't know what I would have said right afterwards. Because I, there's a lot to unpack, and more than any other movie that I've seen in the recent years, like I want to go back and see it again. Like there are people that I know online, particularly like the cosplay community and various people we've met through shows that are, are like, just saw my fourth, you know, my fourth viewing of Endgame and blah blah blah. And I'm like, man, when I walked out of there, I couldn't <laughs> imagine sitting through it again. Even as though, I mean, even though it didn't feel like I spent three hours, and it was very positive experience, but. I couldn't imagine going back and seeing it right away, right? And I know people I was, did that. I was on a um, a group on the Salt Lake uh, FanX, like their Comic-Con page. Yeah. And someone posted on there asking people to stop going to see Avengers in-game so often because every show they tried to go to were sold out. <laughs> like, yeah. You don't need to see it seven times if I haven't seen it once. It is really course, incredible. Yeah, it's just that's nuts to me it's really incredible when you think about the fact that it just passed titanic and james cameron was surprisingly out of character in his grace in dealing with that online but (laughs) uh yeah yeah, i I expected him to be like well do that at you know three thousand feet below see what that you know like some sort of bullshit like that but you know um, it is really (laughs) astonishing that it's doing as well as it is not only given that every film drops off in its second week and there's the very natural backlash to anticipation with something this monumental, mm-hmm. which, I mean, it has flaws left and right. It's just a matter of whether you care, right? right? But it's astonishing that it's doing so well, given that it has less screens per day, being three hours long with yeah. no, you know. I mean, right. it's, I was looking at four different theaters here, and there are four shows or three shows a day based on their schedule. Uh, and you and you compare that against other other normal movies, and they could have five shows a day. Right. It's not that they lose one viewing; it's they lose two viewings because of that three-hour runtime and all the cleanup and everything. So that's absolutely astonishing that it's doing as well as it's doing three two entering its third week with a runtime that long. And there's a lot of repeat viewing, and there's a lot of mainstream audience viewing that's coming into that. So anyway. So you got to see that, and we'll talk about it with Blake, and then we will laugh at all of his bad ideas. Game of Thrones, 
कुछ राजा पिशाचों की अद्भुत कहानी ये है गेम ऑफ थ्रोन्स की कहानी अयाश राजा पिशाचों की अद्भुत कहानी किसकी अम्मी उसके बच्चों के कितने बाप कहानी है या कोई अभिशाप स्टार को राजा का हाथ बनाया एक षड्यंत्र में फंसा के गर्दन उड़वा